I don't. I guess I'm kind of I've, rambling I, on a few points here, but dude, yeah. it's it's just was in in my blood. Like, I mean, uh, I've knocked the the milk off a button buck's lip more oh, times yeah. than I can count. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. I, I, the Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Deer Grow. Man, it's almost food plot season, Jared, and Deer Grow is one of those products that has really changed the way that we plant food plots and the success we've seen from them. No doubt. I've been, you know, trying to plant food plots my, my entire you know, whitetail hunting career, which is a little shorter than yours, but the minute that I started or that I, you know, I realized that I could get Deer Grow back into some of these remote plots where I couldn't get lime or fertilizer, especially in the 50-pound bag, you know, format, mm-hmm. so everything was changed. You know, I could get into these spots uh, moving forward with a, with a backpack sprayer, and that's since escalated to these 40 or 60 uh, gallon sprayers and we're doing upwards of you know five to ten acre food plots just with your grow and having phenomenal success yeah and i mean with the price of fertilizer lime diesel everything this year i mean what better way to get in there and grow a successful food plot at about a third of the cost check out deer grow at deergrow.com and we're back hey our podcast episode 140 as always remember to like follow subscribe youtube spotify apple podcasts or wherever you listen Nick is still here with us. Hey, I haven't messed that up yet. I know. He's been he's been practicing. <laughs> That's good. In the mirror at night. I literally haven't ever. Yeah. I've never I've never practiced once. But. Uh, uh, Nick, welcome back again. Thank you. Uh, you know, still looking still tan. Still tan. Yes. Not any less tan than this morning. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, it was like, an, like 30 minutes ago. We commented on it. Yeah. Um, it is August 3rd. Yeah. You're listening to this, it's, I don't know, mid-August at this point. I might yeah. be at the beach. Maybe I'm looking like Nick at this point. Yeah. Probably not. I'm just burnt and, like, drunk. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> well, that's how it started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you peel we that, peel that layer off, yeah. you know, peel that layer off, and then you're good after yeah. that. I forgot to bring it up on the last one. How bad are your legs? In terms of? <laughs> uh, chiggers. Oh, pretty bad. I'm, uh, I'm, dude. I was about to get a, like a Scotch Bright pad last night. I, and just like scratch my I, legs. I'm, off. I'm actually uh, still dealing with the Magnum PI. Uh, I've oh. got, I've got, because we wore, I wore the hiker boots, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm pretty sure it just leaves a poison ivy kind of just rolled and wrapped around my ankles, and so <laughs> it looks like I had my ankles in like some sort of cuffs, but it's just uh, all poison ivy. Okay, so I've got a little bit, a little sure. bit on the arms and stuff. That, uh, I, that was my. You know, bubbly, whatever we touched in Illinois, which Don told us, don't touch that. And we did. Dude, look at mine. Mine, like, burnt off. Yeah, that looks, uh, that's like flesh eating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was eating away at me pretty good. There's some plant that, like, it's like poison <laughs> ivy, but I might, it's, it might die. But it's not. And, like, but when you touch it, it, like, fills with, like, fluid under Ooh. your skin. This was that. That was my pus bubble there. <laughs> Dude, that's insane. Jared's a picker, too. Like, he can't leave it. So yeah. it's just going to scar up. I'm anxious. So. But, uh, yeah, so I'm recovering, you know, I'm itchy. <laughs> no checkers on the legs? Though? Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe one in a place I didn't want one either. Mm-hmm. Couple. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, well, is that? I'm just hoping that's just like a random itch, and then I'll, uh, it's still there. Huh. I, I don't I, think it's crabs. My, my uh, <laughs> yeah, TBD. My uh, <laughs> Illinois, Illinois crabs. My uh, my confidence in my uh, resiliency to poison ivy is, is ever climbing. Like, I've, I've been oh. of the opinion that I'm not really... Um, allergic, but like I, I didn't really. I don't think I got any from this past trip. Yeah, I've got. I was like, is that poison ivy? He's like, I think that's Virginia creeper. I was like, sure, <laughs> five leaves. I, I don't know if five I've ever. Three. Maybe once when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. I usually get one bad batch a year, and then I don't know. I build yeah. immunity or something. Mm-hmm. 
then after that, it's not bad. But yeah, I was yeah still recovering. The chiggers were real bad, which was funny because I felt like for a couple of days after we must have got them in Kansas. Because, like, I don't think could Illinois be. was... Could be. I didn't get them until, like, two days ago. Yeah. And then it was like, whoa, where did all this come from? Out of nowhere, yeah. Yeah. So, that's what will happen when you're in the you're in the heat of it. Of it. Yeah. So, anyways, um, this kind of tied in, but not tied in to some of our past podcasts here. Uh, we've got uh, Aaron Warburton, Warb, on from the Hunting Public today. And so, we've kind of talked to Warb a little bit about... Some of the podcasts we've had in the past, uh, including Matt Ranella, and some of the things that Matt kind of made assumptions on, and and not just in general uh, towards the hunting public, but you know overall from an, from an access standpoint, from a public system, from a draw system, um, you know obviously Warb and those guys are they're living in the heart of it at this point, and you know a guy like Matt might throw some blame at him. Obviously, we talked to Warb, and those two have never discussed anything; they've never met or talked about it. Um, so it's a lot of the assumptions. Well, you know, those guys are doing this. So obviously it led to why there's, you know, less turkeys here, or there's more people hunting here, or more applications for tags here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to get Warb's end of that because he obviously knows what they do. And, and I know that he works closely with a lot of states and, mm-hmm. and a lot of habitat organizations to, you know, kind of see where these trends are going and what are some of those causes. And, you know, clearly we talk pre-podcast, like, it's not just them. Well, yeah, and, and just for some context on, like, our conversation, like, you and I have been pr- pretty open, and, like, even as we're figuring out our our place in this public-private land debate, not not that there's, uh, you have to be on one side or the sure. other, right? It's, it's an ever-fluid thing here from state to state or, or even within states, but, like, be interesting to hear uh, Aaron's perspective on, like, uh, y- you know, w- with any, like, movement or, like, you know, a- any... Uh, anything that you pursue like there's there's gonna be like consequences positive and negative and so like um undoubtedly like these guys are seeing probably the same uh trends that we've Mm -hmm. been discussing which is Mm -hmm. like in some cases increases you know of hunters and what that might be attributed to and like uh you know what what role you know how that's changed if if at all their position or uh, perspective on that situation and like Mm -hmm. i'm you know i assume it's ever evolving just like our opinion on it is like how those guys need to be uh you know finding themselves in this public land uh landscape well we've had word on before but i'm glad we're kind of at this point in the in the time frame of the podcast to have this discussion because obviously here we are you know a few years post covid boom Right. And so to understand, you know, settling back into like real numbers. Yeah. So like what happened pre into COVID into now coming down out of the the COVID boom, essentially, of the hunting side of it. And we've talked about this before. I mean, should come to no surprise. Not, not I'm not saying that numbers are low because we're going to get into that, but should come to no surprise for people that like it, that false high of COVID is not going to continue. Like it's not there. Mm-hmm. Like people eventually went back to real life, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and so to be able to hear it, you know, on Warb's side and kind of that firsthand experience of what they're seeing in these different states as they travel around, um, you know, I think would be pretty cool. So let's bring them in. It's nice to have Nick here that we don't have to like go around the table and like <laughs> pause nice this to look stuff. at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Just gives me the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. 
Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Peace in my soul. Yeah. What up, dudes? Yeah. Oh man, look hey. that is that is crisp, clear. It's the best sounding war, guest man. we've ever had. Yeah. That is a that is an Amazon special, boys. Eighty nine like, ninety nine, right there. That'll do it. Just Dude. got it. That'll do it. You're so just like, this is the maiden voyage for this new microphone setup. Like Rogan up in that good, joint. Sounds, Hopefully, it sounds great. good, Nick. It, yeah, no, you sound great, dude. We'll fix it in post. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, we'll do it live. It's a, it's it sounds a, good, but I'm sitting here itching just listening to y'all talk. <laughs> We're gonna just keep talking and not not yeah. take you off mute. Your well, phone, yeah. Right? I, obviously, as a as a dedicated uh, you know guy of the Midwest, you've had your fair share of uh, chicken run-ins. Oh, dude, it's just part of life <laughs> at this point. Is but, there anything? I mean, you, is there anything you can part. do? I don't know, man. I've heard all kinds of st- of weird stuff. Jared and, and squeezes them out. I don't know if that's really what you're supposed to do or not. Like I, I I'm talking like forceful squeezing them out. I get them. I too. heard you scratch them until you open them up and then you pour like bleach in them or something. And then <laughs> I don't think that's I mean, gonna I've seen, good. Yeah, you, I've seen guys that president. did that and then they just end up with these ugly scabs all over the place. It's like yeah. I don't know, man. Just, just I'll just fun. ingest the bleach and hope it that takes yeah. care of I, it. We'll have to figure out Warb. I don't know what it was the the plant. It, it kind of looks like Look a that. like a Queen Anne's lace yep. type of annual plant, but it's I don't know if it's like a poison. I don't think it's poison hemlock or something. But I don't know. But like yeah, don't touch it because it's not good. I do agree with what Jared was saying though about like if you've gotten poison ivy a few times in your life, sometimes you know, you don't get as bad of a reaction to it as you get older. It seems like the more I'm around it, the the less it's a problem. Hmm. I wonder whose side um, of the conversation more would be on from earlier. What's that? Oh, from our earlier conversation? The nature versus... Uh, oh, we'll get into it. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, well, cool, man. Listen, we we appreciate you taking time out of out of the editing day, it sounds like, to to jump on. And Isn't it crazy, dude, that it's, it's August 3rd right now? Yeah, man, it's fly- summer's flying by. Got to fish with the boys last weekend, and that's what I really enjoy most about summers is just getting to take them fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, but it just goes by way too fast. It's like I I wish it wasn't. I wish I could back up a month or so and kind of do that portion over again because it was so much fun. Yeah, just getting to kind of take eyes off of a computer screen for a little bit. But now. Mm. We're getting closer to September, and I'm on here, like I told you guys, pre-podcast. I'll be on here till late tonight, and then again tomorrow. I'm trying to help Greg finish some interviews for a really cool video that we're going to drop at the first of next week. Um, it's going to be, it's, I think it's going to be called Five Ways to Be a Jerk on Public Land. Ooh. We like filmed a bunch of these skits, <laughs> like basically just showing what a, you know, what a total jerk looks like on public yep. land. And I think it's going to be really funny, but we're putting a lot of we're putting a lot of effort into it. You know, we're showing sort of the funny, the satirical side, and then yeah. we're also talking about, 
you know, how to be ethical on sure. public land, other hunters and how to treat people right and stuff like that. So, isn't that funny, man? I mean, it's, um, it, it all kind of comes back to this whole limited resource thing, which we beat to death. But, you know, when you get into some of these, these places, um, Corey, who was on our last podcast was with us in, in Southern Illinois a couple of years ago. And like, we sent him into this, you know, spot and we kind of had already mapped it out and set up a stand and like, I don't know, he's like a hundred yards in and basically some dudes like F bombing him and flashing him with his light and stuff. And it's like, what do you expect him to do? Like he's going, he's not going to set up right next to you. He's walking by you, but like, you can't be the gatekeeper to the entire public land. And it's your fault. You're set up a hundred yards from the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's always folks like that, but to be honest, I'd say we have had a few of those run-ins over the years and they're never pleasant. Um, like, but I'd say 95% of our interactions with people are positive. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask takes you that one guy though, you know, to kind of ruin, sure. ruin your season even, or ruin you from going back into that spot. Like there's, there's been some occasions, like I was talking with Eric Chesser recently from hush and he was, he got ran off of public land like multiple times in this one little spot. He was just glassing from this little corner. He was glassing across a piece of private onto some public that he had to access from the other way but it was, it was public land mm -hmm. and he was sitting there and he had no, he was not going to go onto the private and trespass. Obviously he was just watching game through a spotting scope. And this guy harassed him to the point that, you know, he had to call the warden and everything. Remember it's I got like, chased off in Kansas that way. Uh, when you, um, were hunting on Marcus's place and I was watching those bucks in that field, I was sitting there with my, um, just, just glassing yeah, yeah, from yeah. a, from a public road, like just glassing wasn't going on anyway. And this guy came up next to me and he basically, you know, and no better words, what, told what, me to get out of there and followed me the whole way out. You know, was, what was my question to you is like, what, cause it would take a fair amount of harassment. To, you'd have to wave a gun in my face to like, it's, it's a public road. Like you can say wherever you want. Yeah. It, it's just that, are you, when are you going to take the high road on it and just be like, it's not worth my time. And listen, in today's society, people are freaking nuts as well. So we've you just never we've had, we've had cops come and run us off of, cause they didn't want us <laughs> like a deer. We were already pulled off the side of the road. He's like, you're parked on my curb. I was like, it's not your curb, but all right. <laughs> yeah. I usually just walk away. I mean, if yeah. we did if, if that, like I said, that's only happened a couple of times ever to me, but the few times that it has happened, I just am like, nah, it ain't worth yeah, it. It's not I'm going to go it. somewhere else. I mean, I'm looking at a pretty big area here with lots of different access points. It's mm. not worth it. Sure. Now I at least know where you're going to be, and this spot means a lot to you, so I'll just well, we kind of avoid this area for now. Although, like, to Jared's point, that's not really, that's not right for them to do sure. that. I just, you know, I'd rather not stress out over a confrontation and yeah. just avoid it the non-resident thing is is i think a lot of the the mm -hmm. uh, opportunity there like for instance that was in illinois when the police like if we were a resident i'm sure we wouldn't have gotten near as much shit for it well it does ha it happens everywhere i mean it's it's funny to hear aaron as much as you guys are exposed to you know the the public lands in, in you know period uh that happened to us in the dakotas too right there was that outfitter that yep. was running guys off of uh Pull, driving pair we had to walk in because it was a walk-in uh, it was part of the plots program. that happens a lot dude i think yep. on those more nomadic species like you know the outfitters or whoever the local they know where they're at he drove the and fence see, line they as see guys, people were walking up the fence line on the public side he just drove right next to them to make which sure which i was no laugh way. at it's like what are you gonna do like you're run me off the road or it's like i'm just gonna sit here 
Yeah. I don't know. Well, people, it, it comes back to people really, and this is kind of what we're going to talk That's about a lot today. time, man. Think about like the old Indian tribes. They used to probably the war over, you know, the Buffalo, sure. like moving through an area and stuff. It's, yeah. it's a, uh, it's a primal, it's a primal thing. Yeah, it is. It's just like back then they had to eat to survive. Yeah. And now like, that's why I, I kind of throw my hands up when some, when some of that stuff happens is like, at the end of the day, is it really worth it? Yeah. Is it really worth it to try to just mm-hmm. keep such a tight grip on this thing from other people? Um, you know, like you're saying, Jared, in an outfitter's case, they may have elk that are, you know, they're summering on the public land and wintering on their property. And they're trying to keep as many people out of that public land as possible so that they can guide clients or whatever on their property. And I'm not saying I shouldn't say outfitters in general because sure. they're not all like that. Sure. There's no. lots of really good ones. It just, you know, a few bad apples like that here and there you, you definitely hear about. Yep. But even then, it's like, man. Are you starving no. to death? Are no. you, you, it's going to be all right. I, I, I just have always had better luck having a discussion with people. It's like if there's a guy, I ran into a guy from Michigan. I was hunting at, um, in Iowa, and obviously I've spent a lot of time there hunting over the years, and I was going in for a gun hunt early in the morning. I knew the spot I was going to. I got in there way before daylight. And I was slipping into this bedding area. I was probably 50 yards from the spot I wanted to set up. And I saw a light coming in behind me. And there's only one access path in there. So I knew it was another hunter coming right in the same way that I just did. So he saw my truck parked there. He still got out. He walked in directly behind me. And he walked right up to me. And I was like, well, where are you, where are you headed? <laughs> he said, and where are we he going? Pointed right to, he pointed right to that bedding area that I was going to. He's like, I got to stand back here. It's been up for eight months. And I've been wanting to hunt it on opening day. So I'm going to sit right there. I'm like, right there's where I was planning on going <laughs> right on the transition of the bedding area. And he just kind of looked at me and he didn't say anything for a while. And I'm like, where are you from? Your accent sounds a little different. And he's like, I'm from Michigan. And I said, so you wait a couple years to get this tag. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, probably cost a good amount of money. And he said, yeah. And I said, just go back there. I'm like, I hunt here a lot. I know all this public land pretty well. Like I've got, yeah. Five other options, even on opening day again season where I can go. Um, so I just said, just go back there. And I walked out of there and I just moved to a different spot. Ended mm-hmm. up killing a buck. Yeah. And that's the high road side um, of things. You take that time to inform them that you're not supposed to leave stands on public land <laughs> for eight months. Uh yeah, I mean I did mention that. I was like, <laughs> well, you're technically technically not supposed to have that thing up all summer. You just you're supposed to put it up, you know, seven days before the season or during the season. Yeah. He's like, and it's made out of two by fours. What do you want me to do? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he, he was pretty cool after that. Obviously he's like, man, I really appreciate you doing that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I've been, ex- I drove all the way down here yesterday and I've been excited about getting in there. It's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Dude, I got, I got other places I can go. It never ceases to amaze me, like how people come out of the woodwork. Like we've experienced in Kansas, uh, recently these, these places that are like so remote and you're like, I'm in it, dude. Like this is, you know, big buck central. Like I'm, we're really putting an effort to be back here. And then wouldn't you know it, like that week rolls around and it's like, you know, so-and-so found a way to forge the river right here. So-and-so's private land backs up and it's like this 
you know, we, we, we can recount it for you at some point. But this, I have a spot like that in Kansas. It's not like I have a spot, but there's this spot in Kansas that historically has been very good. We found big sheds there. I've missed some big deer there. Um, one big deer in particular. Mm-hmm. And this last year we went back to hunt it. And I, I, I know for sure one thing had changed, but, f- you know, I, I don't know if that's what I contribute all of this to or not. But I had guys walk under me the first four hunts. I mean, literally, and it's back there. It's it's in there quite a time ways. after time after time. Sometimes two guys in one hunt, and I'm like, "What happened?" Like I had never seen anybody Early back November. here before. Third week, third week November, third week November. Mm-hmm. Okay, third week, which like, a lot of guys, you know, are, are kind of privy to. It's like you know, you can be a little bit further north that second week of November, and Kansas is like a third week. People know that. The big factor there is they <clears throat> they ended up clearing a little bit of a path along the private property fence for cattle. Main, I, I think they were just maintaining the fence, and too. then I mean, it all made of a sudden, it, it opened it, it wide for up. People to get back. Yeah. There. I couldn't believe it, Warb. It was just like, by was the, there a really big deer in there? I didn't know. Well, yes, there yeah, was. We did. There was one that I thought you know we had pictures of from like uh, earlier on in the year, yeah, I guess. But probably was a. See, that's they didn't that's know that. What we've I can almost guarantee man, it. It's like doing this for a while now. Um, if we show a really really big one, uh, the floodgates open immediately. Yeah, it's like, and and it's a lot of times it's it's local folks that know the area. That's the biggest thing with us is like we don't film. We don't film landmarks if we can avoid it. We right. don't talk about specific areas or anything like that. I mean, we might mention the state that we're in, but most of the time we go to great lengths. I mean, any maps that you see on our videos, they're not actual maps yeah. of the area. Mm-hmm. They're example maps that we pulled from somewhere else just yeah. to illustrate the point. Um, because we want to be respectful to the residents that hunt there. Like, we're not trying to hotspot a particular property. Right. Which is what um, you get accused of, Warb. I mean, for, oh yeah, for a lot of do. people, and I mean, they're they're calling you. They're saying, these guys are spot burning. That, we don't do that. That's false. Like, I saw some post on a forum one time that had our logo on the, on the sign of some national forest. It's like, we've <laughs> never filmed that sign one time. And, in fact, we've made a point not to. Yeah. Um, we don't. And and granted, we we put out a lot of content. I'm sure mistakes have been made over time, uh, where we've you know missed something. That's going to happen every once in a while. But I mean, we go to great lengths not to show the specific spots. But what I'm what I have noticed is if if locals hunt there, or not even a local, if if a non-resident or local hunts there, and they know the intricacies of the area, yeah. they've already been there. Yeah, they and know like it. Set foot on the area, they can they can see where you've been that's yep. what it is but those aren't the ones i'm necessarily concerned about no they're already there those people they've already been there yeah. i just don't want somebody that's five states away to be able to just immediately know exactly where we're at and then show up there well but the world is what just i have smaller. noticed with the big deer thing though man is like yeah if we've shown a really big one or there's a big one that's in yeah. the area and people know about him and he's living on public land people come out of the woodwork yeah. I hunted a deer that was like 190s or something in Iowa a few years ago um, and filmed a video or two about it. Didn't show any landmarks, nothing like that. And the place had maybe, you know, one or two hunters on it that I'd seen all season. All of a sudden, there was like 10 or 15 new hunters. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in the matter of a week. And they were all running cameras in the same draw, and they all had stands around this same draw. So it was like, ah. Wow. I mean, it. I, from that point on, we just kind of 
We're yeah. like, we're not going to chase this specific. It's a Chris B effect. Here. Well, dude, <laughs> people are so effective nowadays. Like, it's it's funny, you know, you know, somebody can point to you guys or, or Eric Chester or whoever and say, well, you guys are promoting public land and it's creating an increase in pressure. The, the reality is, uh, you know, and I'll assimilate it, assimilate it like to our conversation about like baiting and the effect that that has. It's, it's not just that one thing. It's the fact that like in your case, it's paired with tools like, like Onyx and like, you know, things that's like, you know, even right here, uh, our, uh, our ability to figure out where something is at or like use this deductive reasoning is so much better than it ever has been, you know, paired with a, a promotion of public land. It's like, no matter how careful you are about the promotion of something, it's like, you know, if somebody's driven, like, we'll we'll find a way. Figure it know? out. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is is uh, the access problem. It and is. And that's, that's really existed for the last couple decades. And it's, I mean, we've all experienced it. Um, and I used to think, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s growing up, I was like, well, this is only happening in our area of Missouri. You know, we're getting... All of a sudden, we're getting all these people coming up from St. Louis or, yep. you know, uh, Kansas City or the cities, uh, any city in Missouri, and they're buying <laughs> up land up here. They're leasing up land, and like this wasn't happening a few years ago. And this, it just started to transpire in the early two thousands time frame when pretty much all the local folks in the area. We, I mean, you could go down the road and buck square bales for a farmer and you could get access and three or four of your buddies also had access to the same farm yep and you just kind of shared that but then you know it snowballed from there leasing mm -hmm. became a thing and then sort of um trophy deer and growing trophy deer bigger antlers became a thing scoring deer then aging deer and you guys know like when it comes to making a big buck you need a lack of human pressure yep you need people to not be there yep. i mean you mm -hmm. need to remove as much of that out of the equation as possible and essentially give those deer a sanctuary to live and the bigger that sanctuary gets the less access you have mm -hmm. so um i'm not saying at the time i was really pissed off about that when i was younger i mean I, heck, I used to hunt quietly a lot when I was younger because I saw this happening and it all got leased and bought anyway. Um, so I decided after that point, I'm like, well, I'm just going to be proactive about this. And, you know, the that's the reality that we faced. Well, there, we get accused of hunting public land because, you know, it's cool or we're trying to be cool or make money or whatever. It's like we we didn't start hunting public land because of that reason we started hunting public land because we didn't have nowhere other place to go. Yeah. I mean, when I moved to Iowa, I was making sub 20 grand a year. I didn't have enough money to lease or buy property. And it was really, really difficult to find a place to get permission to hunt. I mean, I eventually found a place two and a half hours from where we were at. Um, but it just became public land just was the, uh, that was what was available. Right. So we ended up out there and I think a lot of people are in that same boat. I mean, there, there's still, you still have the ability to get permission now, but it is way more difficult than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and that all is, that all is consistently. And like you just said, it's not just that one thing. It's not just trophy deer. Yeah. It's the globalization of farming practices. Um, you know, the urbanization of, of rural communities essentially like all rural communities across the country are shrinking 
yep. and people are having to move to bigger cities where the money is just mm-hmm. to make a livelihood, just to make a living. Mm-hmm. So as that as that happens and transpires more and more across the board, and more and more habitat gets destroyed around these urban areas, I mean, there's there just is like so many factors involved in the lack of access for people. Yeah, and that's the thing that. <clears throat> Um, I mean, that's really why we started this in the first place was like, look, people are in the same boat as us. There's actually a lot of people in the same boat as us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And nobody's relating to them. Nobody's communicating to them or creating content for them. I mean, that's why it worked. I mean, we didn't know it was going to, but that's what we learned real quick is like, holy crap. There's a lot of people like this that are just the general public that hunt. Yeah. I think one of the big things, too, is <clears throat> to your point, we're going back in those late 90s, early 2000s, is most states, especially these destination states in the Midwest and stuff, everybody was heading that way, right? COVID yeah. just threw the rocket ship through the ceiling, basically. It's like we had this steady kind of increase of like we're heading towards like lack of access and, and there's going to be issues. And then all of a sudden COVID hit and it just it reared its head like right there in front of us that fast. Because all of these people who normally, you know, dabbled or spent a little time here and a little time there, that's the only thing they could do was get outside. Oh, go, you, had go two, you had two things going on. You had all these new new people that had time to get into it. Yep. You know, and they they have to stay inside or go outdoors. Yep. So why would somebody sit in a city in their apartment where they can't go outside and do anything when they could go? I mean, that's why you saw you know, RV sales go through the roof and canoeing and kayaking spike and national park usage. You saw everything just spike. Anything that had to do with outdoor rec. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Through the roof. It just went through the roof. Um, but then also you have all these existing hunters that now have five, 10 times the amount of time to go to the woods. Whereas before they might've only hunted turkeys once or twice in a week. Mm -hmm. Now they can go five, six times. Yeah. Um, and you hear that across the board and yep. that's, that's really, that's how states manage these resources. A lot of times, uh, it is the number of licenses sold, but more importantly, it's the amount of time yeah. spent in a field. It's like how many days on average does it take a person to harvest a deer or harvest a turkey? Yep. And those, those number of hundred days just like you said, went to the moon overnight and nobody knew what the heck was going on at the time. Like we had no idea that this was, that this was even going to happen in this fashion. Nobody did in 2019. No. Um, but but then it happened and now we're coming off of it Yeah, and starting to get back to normal. Although I don't know that we ever will. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear that states are really heavily considering that time spent factor um, because when we talk about the crossbows uh, as a part of the archery season, like that, that seems like the biggest factor that like, at, at least, you know, from us sitting here in this room and not hearing from the States is like, that's overlooked. You know, it's like, you still hear about the, you know, hunter numbers are way down, hunter numbers are, are way down. But at the same time, um, you know, seemingly because of, of the crossbow and, and also because of COVID and everything else we're talking about here, it's like opportunity. Yeah. But the time spent in the field and the, the pressure that's, you know, put on other hunters and also the wildlife that's there is like, uh, seemingly at an all time high. So how do you combat that? Yeah, it just, it, it kind of depends on the, the area that you're in and the time frame that you're hunting. So uh, there definitely is overcrowding in some spots 
And in most cases, it's during specific time frames, like the first couple of days of turkey season on public lands. Mm-hmm. Or like the first week of November. November. Yeah. But if you go to a lot of these areas during different times, you don't see very many people. At least we don't. We mm. don't. We haven't seen a tremendous increase. Now, however, across the board, we did see a big increase in 21. Like yeah. Everywhere we went in 21, we saw more people, more trucks, more hunters. Yeah. But since then, it has went back down. And it seems like this last spring was just like 2018. Yeah. where we went 2019 and looking at the looking at the numbers it's about this that's where it's at again for a lot of states not all some of them it is mm-hmm. some of them it's went up and stayed there some of them it's went up and then got back flat some of them it's went up and then dropped even below the five-year average mm. that was beforehand that happened before covid so it's really is a case-by-case basis but i definitely like we avoid areas the first week in November that we think are going to have a lot of hunters because yeah. that's the time. If you go back to that same area, the first week of October or towards the end of the season, you don't see anybody. Yeah, nobody's there. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's wild. So yes, they are creating more opportunity in the way that the seasons are structured, making, you know, they may have made longer deer seasons, but I don't know if people are necessarily using that the crossbow thing though i could definitely see you know more people going to the woods with crossbows during that time frame mm-hmm. and then overcrowding occurring mm-hmm. well yeah, yeah i mean you know on the crossbow thing specifically i'd just speaking in generality it's like a, a lot of those people probably at one time were were gun hunters maybe, maybe are still gun hunters and that sure. gun season is restricted or like was you know most utilized in one or two days you know opening weekend or or whatever and so for, for all sorts of reasons that i would also get on board with you know be able to hunt a rut be able to hunt more uh you know uh favorable weather conditions and you know mm-hmm. all the above just more time in the woods it's like well the, the crossbow allows me to to do that i can now go hunt that season with a, a weapon that has a very low barrier to entry i can just basically pick it up and, and shoot it so i understand why that is the case you know but that's i think we're in agreement on what the outcome has been is just more people spending more time in the in the woods i think where it caught a lot of these states off guard is again nobody could have anticipated what 2020 had in store for us right so if you look at states like i think kansas started it in 2014 uh, pennsylvania was 2016 or 17 but opening up crossbows general to to anybody um then all of a sudden you hit that COVID time frame and it's like, oh, you gave them more opportunity. Now they have even more opportunity. That's Way that more was time. That was that was Way a more huge thing to um, to try to combat. And and there's certain states that did some things. Like I know, uh, I think it was 2020 war. Kentucky canceled their non-resident turkey tags. Um, so my non-resident turkey tag in the state of Kentucky during that COVID 20, no good. I, I couldn't couldn't use it. I was out. Uh, there was a couple states that I think canceled similar seasons or non-resident tags and some. So Nebraska, I think Nebraska did, did. Yeah. So they tried to figure it out, but still, you know, that's a hard thing to control. Like once the cat's out of no, the bag, no, Kirk, no turkey hunting, you're going to spread COVID. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that was the year we went to the Dakotas, right? And it was. that was the first year we were like worried that they were going to shut it down, which was weird. Cause then again, so that was, a, we went out to North Dakota first time out there, uh, Western part for muleys, uh, in I you know fall of COVID right, I don't think we were in. There, it wasn't hardly any pressure. No, not much. You know, I mean, now given yeah, just kind of that's what we see is it's just like you go into one spot, man, and 
even on a particular area, you could go, you could go into one side of a public area and it's getting smoked. Yep. And then you could go around to the other side of Nothing. it and there's one truck there. Check or me no out. Trucks there. Check me out on this for not to blow up their, uh, you know, I'm sure there's conversations that have happened around this, but we don't know like the guys at Onyx or, you know, to take, you know, that that's probably the most utilized. Uh, yeah, but Hunstand, Spartan Forge, sure. any of them. Sure, sure. Oh, there's, a, there's several of them now. Whatever, whatever they are. Um, it, imagine, you know, there probably is, has to be some sort of whether it's like live tracking or just where the pins are at or whatever. The, that, that company's got to have the ability, Super has data. to, especially if it's got, if it does have the real-time thing, say, okay, it, it's allowing for uh, GPS, track. GPS tracking. Mm -hmm. Like, you literally over time could map and say, here's a pressure map of the United States. Yeah, they could. They could. <laughs> Yeah. They could just make all those pins public and just blow every spot up <laughs> in the whole country. Yeah. Uh, so you're telling me you've never seen be this good, map I before? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it, I'm not saying it exists. Yeah, it definitely not. could exist. <laughs> yeah. It, and I mean, that's, that's where, what I would do if I was Onyx. I'd be like, hey, we should go. There's nobody hunting us. That's where this technology advancement has kind of come along. And it, it, and it has. Because it's funny. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Sorry, guys at Onyx for blowing yeah. that up for no, you. No, but uh, for sure, there's there are plenty of people, you know, in the 90s and 2000s who went to Illinois and Iowa and Kansas to hunt from Ohio. Or you just, you didn't hear about Undetected. It. No Undetected. social media, no yep. Onyx, Literally no Literally the, the Matt Ranella hunt quietly. Like, it, it just wasn't there. Well, they were telling all their buddies at home and stuff about it, but they but just, just didn't have the, they didn't have the platform. I mean, There's no outlet to... Like, Warb, you talked about leases and stuff. It was pro I was probably in college. I was pro I may have even been in Mississippi, like, in grad school, before somebody said, yeah, I, like, lease this property. I'm like, for what? They're, like, hunting. I'm like, what? What do you mean? Like, it was, <laughs> it was completely foreign in my area. Like nobody, nobody leased property in Western Pennsylvania in like the early 2000s, even. Mm. Like it just, I never heard about it. I that. would hear about but it was like Texas. You'd be like, oh, there's a deer lease. Or like yes. some of the stuff up north, maybe like Michigan stuff. There was old leases. Yeah. Weird. That, and then all of a sudden it was like the deer lease. Yeah. Became everything. Yeah. It just started happening. I mean, my dad and uncles and their buddies all went to Illinois like two or three years in a row in the late 90s. And they just drove around and saw big bucks everywhere and started knocking on doors and got permission to hunt like three or four places. Crazy. And they went over there and had a heyday. They yep. had an awesome time. And then they went to go one more year and knocked on the guy's door. And he's like, sorry, guys, I leased this place up. <laughs> Two years later, he sold it. Jeez. Um, and now you fast forward 10, 15 years later, and there's no opportunity there for them anymore unless they've. Got yeah, quite a bit I mean, there, there's not much. I know people say, hey, you know, worst thing they can tell you is no. There isn't much opportunity for knocking anymore. I mean, no, in, in, not. in many I mean, places. You can get it. If you work hard at it, you can definitely get it. And I I still think that there's definitely a place to to show people. Like I was talking with Lee Ellis from Seek One about this recently because he's really good at getting permission. Mm -hmm. um, it's like there's there's a definitely a place to educate people on the right way and the wrong way to do this because nobody, you know, I hate it when I hear a farmer tell me like, Oh, I don't allow anybody to hunt. Cause I did a few years ago and they came in here and rutted up my crops yep, and absolutely you know, shot Trash. towards my house. It's like, dang mm -hmm. it, man, this one guy ruined this for Blew everybody it. else. Mm -hmm. When if, if they just would have been better about it, then we would still have this opportunity. Yep. So I think there still is a place for that, certainly. But to your point, Jeremy, it's nothing like it was when we were kids. No. I mean, 
I could go around and I had access to seven, 800 acres of private land when I was 15, 16 years yep, old. Same. And it wasn't exclusive access. I shared it with lots of other people, but yeah, it was great. I mean, you could just go hunting with your buddies wherever. And now we got access to the hundred acres that my grandpa bought in the early seventies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everything else has been chunked up and bought into smaller and smaller chunks or leased into smaller and smaller chunks and uh yeah that's just the way it is but i don't i mean it makes me sad to think about because i i mean the the spot where i killed my first deer with a bow it was man my uncle farmed that place for three or four decades and they didn't own it they just rented it for farming and the landowner let them hunt on it and I killed a, my first year with a bow out of an old wooden ladder stand called Old Faithful mm -hmm. that they put up. And this ladder stand was old, old. It was predated me. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it had been in this tree for 15, 20 years. And I shot a, you know, a nice little six-pointer or something out of it. Made a good shot. And I watched him go down almost. And it was an awesome experience. And about eight or nine years ago, my cousin sent me a picture of that stand on a trailer they had to go in and take everything off that property because a uh, guy bought it Jeez. for, he bought it and then outfitted it and leased it. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, I don't blame that guy. I mean, I yeah. want to, but you can't blame that guy for doing that. It's just, man, you know, a bummer. my uncle, he just is a blue collar <clears throat> farmer that has worked his whole life to take care of his family. And, there's no way that our family could afford to buy that, that piece. Um, so whenever it sold, they sent me those pictures and I mean, I cried like a baby because mm -hmm. I was like, you know, this is such a huge part of my childhood hunting Yeah, and their childhood hunting. And now it's gone never. And we haven't been able to go back onto it since then. And that the more I talk to people across the country, the more common that theme is, um, so I'm, I have personal feelings about that. And I, like, I, I don't like that that happened the way that it did, but at the same time, I look at other things that are going on, like just around these cities and watching draws getting bulldozed and stuff yep. like that is like the one good thing about folks that are buying land to hunt or leasing land to hunt is that most of the time they have wildlife in their best interest. Yeah. You know, and they're going to protect what's there. If you sell a piece of land for development and they wipe that thing, it's wipe gone. that slate clean, you're toast. That's yep. like, that's like the worst of the worst mm -hmm. as far as I'm, I can see it. So I don't know, man, it's just the, I, I was mad about it at first, like I said, and I tried to just, I tried to not tell anybody and keep those spots as long as I could, but they all got leased and bought and after that, I was like, man, things are just going to change. There, there's nothing that, there's no way you're going to stop no. some of this stuff. Like you said, once the cat's out of the bag, it's, there's no putting it back in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so all you can really do is adapt. And in my opinion, adapt, support, and advocate the resources that you do have. And like I was telling you, Jeremy, not that long ago, I really wish a lot more states would you know, get involved with the access stamps. Oh yeah. And man. go the, 
you know, that Weehaw ground in Kansas and the IHAP stuff in Iowa yep. is really good. Plots in North but Dakota. The, right. The states just don't, they have some of some restrictions in these areas where they're handcuffed on the amount of money they can spend on that. Right. So they can get outbid by private interests. Yep. And it's, it's hard for them to compete for access when they have those restrictions. But if you earmark a stamp in these different places where the funds are directed for that, only Mm -hmm. maybe we can make a dent there and i I wish in general that if you're a if you're a deer hunter and you own a big tract of land to just try to share it with good people that you know Mm -hmm. i mean as as best as you can even if it's just letting kids come out there and shoot does or something yep i mean then you can then kind of spread around a little bit but Mm -hmm. i mean i've seen it in some areas of iowa in big swaths of land like 2000 acre chunk here, 3,500 here, 800 here, 1500 here. And you're talking about miles and miles and miles with hundreds and hundreds of deer, four people can hunt them. Yeah. It's like 30 years ago, there might've been 30 or 40 people that could hunt them. Right. Because that, that was all, you know, that was back in the days of permission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The state thing is interesting. I'll, I'll, try not to butcher Pennsylvania's, but so Jared and I sell land here in Pennsylvania. One of the things that we learned probably within recent is the Pennsylvania game commission. There is a state law, like a legislative law that they it's from like the 1930s, basically that they can't spend more than $500 an acre on ground right right? now. They can use, uh, in, in of course, our area, oil, gas rights produce a lot of money, and they can use that. But there's still a threshold of approval from the le- state legislature for them to buy land. So if you look at where the real estate market is on land, the Game Commission, it basically has to either get the steal of a century or almost get it donated to them to be able to buy more access. They can't. All they get is the unwanted stuff. That's it. Like the wetland areas or whatever. Absolutely. That you can't farm that you can't drill on or anything that's real cheap. And I don't remember if we talked about this not long ago, Jeremy, or not, but Georgia has that. Uh, they they recently tried to buy that Pine Log WMA, which was yep. leased from a private landowner. Yep. And they could bid up to appraised value on it, and they could not go over. And they tried doing it multiple times couldn't and they couldn't it. they couldn't go over appraised value so they can't compete in the market Jeez. um crazy so man get involved on your get involved <laughs> with your state commissions like yeah and find there are, out what's going on wherever you live because it's different every single place that you go to yeah but if you get involved in those commissions you can at least understand the little intricacies in in your own state of what they can and cannot do yeah. Um, there are states doing it right. Like, I, I think at least when I was there, Mississippi had a WMA permit that you bought. I don't know. It was yep. 15 bucks at the time. I don't know what. But even if you were a non-consumptive user, like if I was just going to hike on it or whatever, I still had to buy that WMA permit. That's a huge source of income, especially from the non-consumptive side, which that is one of the struggles we talk about a lot is like, how do we, the non-consumptive users who use a lot of our public lands, you know, they're not buying a hunting license. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about that in the past Warb is like, how do we get them to on an annual basis, basically help fund these natural resources and access programs, um, and things well, like the WMA permit them, too. Like, have, you, have you seen Kyle Leibarger stuff on like, uh, Instagram native habitat yeah, project? Yep. I have. He, he mostly makes shorts, um, and TikTok videos yep. and whatnot. Um, he's got a huge audience of hunters, but he also has a huge, huge audience of non hunters. Right. 
that totally support native landscapes. Yes. And a lot of those non-consumptive users, like you're talking about, like bird watchers or whoever, dog walkers, yep. I don't know. A lot of those people, they really value the environment. Huge. Um, so if you could, if you could somehow bring them together, which is kind of what BHA did in its, in its infancy, mm -hmm. you know, was it sort of bridge that gap between people. But if you could bring those folks together in some way around the habitat side, yep. there's a lot of people that would agree on the restoration of native habitats and the preservation of native habitats for wildlife and wild places. Yeah. Um, Think of that opportunity, of, like, though, that we missed in COVID. Like, had these yeah. programs been set up appropriately when COVID happened, it would have bankrolled some serious access. Yep. And and we it, it wasn't. In most states, there are some states, I'll give them credit, they, they probably benefited greatly. But the states that weren't set up for it, there was this mad rush of demand for it. And there was no way to set up to essentially monetize to, to go to future access and conservation and preservation. Yeah. And like you said, there are some states to look to to follow. Like, and I would agree, Mississippi, um, they, they've done a lot of things right. Yeah. They've um, got a great department. The yeah. On the turkey side, too. Like Adam Butler, yep. their turkey coordinator, awesome. he's a rock star. Yeah. Um, but, I've, I've hunted down there several times the last few years. The turkey hunting is good on public lands. The turkey hunting is good on private lands. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of access. Lots. And they've had an increase in resident hunters, resident turkey hunters, over the last 10, 15 years, which is something that before the pandemic, a lot of states were seeing decreases in residents, especially youth. Mm -hmm. You know, up where we're at in Iowa, Leading up to 2019, they had had like 10 years in a row of youth hunter recruitment declines. Right. Like every single year it was going down a little bit up until 2019. But Mississippi has somehow reversed that trend, yet they still have great good hunting. Yep. Um, so like that WMA permit is really something to think about. And I think you've talked about the Missouri sales <laughs> tax before too. I have. Like, dude, oh man. I wish I, I wish we could get that in every state. Oh my, it, I mean, that is the solution, I think. I mean, at least part of it, but I mean, in terms of a, how do I get money, right? We're talking like fractions and fractions of a percent on every sales tax that happens in that state. It is a pile and pile of money. I mean, Missouri is probably, if not number one, top three wealthiest departments in the country. Oh, dude, when you look at the pie chart breakdown from what they get from that sales tax, yeah, like over half of their budget is from that sales tax. Yep. Where if you go across the border to Iowa, they have no sales there tax. There is no sales like tax. They, yeah. No, they They're, they basically have a fraction of the budget that Missouri has. And yeah. when you and I can take you to a WMA in Iowa that is, you know, 20,000 acres, got like two guys working on it. And I know the guys, they work their butts off. Yep. They're awesome people making just average normal folk salaries yep. and they're out there working their butts off trying to do as much as they can um but i can take you right across the border to missouri on some wmas that are you know uh, that are 20 percent the size of that that are like four thousand acres and they've got you know headquarters and equipment there they got four or five people that absolutely are dedicated to just that one place yeah and the habitat is immaculate i mean Resources matter That's as it. far as money is concerned. And I get it. There's a lot of states that, you know, there's a lot of money sitting behind closed doors that sure. 
we want to see used for a lot of this stuff that doesn't get used for it. Um, that gets used for other things or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but at the end of the day, if they have more to work with there, there is case studies from these States, like we're mentioning where it's, you see direct benefit. And I, that's why I really like the stamp ideas because yep. when you earmark a stamp for something, they have to use the money for that. Mm-hmm. So then you don't get all the politics involved behind the scenes. Yeah, where's the money over go? the last, yeah. you know, $2 million in the budget or whatever, because everybody's got an interest or a department that they're trying to support. So everybody's jockeying for those funds with the earmark stamp. Mm-hmm. Those funds are, I mean, it, it almost makes it, in my opinion, it, I would think it would make it easier on the commissions. You would think so. Because then they don't have to make decisions on that. Yeah. They can, the funds are earmarked for Habitat, for example, or for WMAs or for uh, least private yep. for public access. Yeah. Then they just send the funds to that department and they spend them how they're supposed to. And they don't have to deal with all that other back and forth. Yeah. I mean, I know there's been a huge push in a lot of states for, um, you know, hunting and fishing to not just be a privilege, but be put in the state constitution for a right. Very, yep. very needed. Right. I think, uh, I think it's going on in Oregon right now. Is it? Potentially. How, how for wildlife just put something up about that recently. There you go. Those so, are awesome guys, by the way. I don't know if you all have had them on. I don't yet, think we have. Charles, Charles yeah. from How is it? He's the dude. From what? How? How for Wildlife. They are an advocacy group that posts like action items on their page where we share their stuff all the time and we talk about them in our podcast as much as we can. But they're they're mostly in tune with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the West Coast, like in California and Oregon and Washington and stuff. But they occasionally. Like I just told Charles the other day about an issue in Texas and he called me immediately and was like trying to get the, the lowdown on what was going mm-hmm. on because they want to help. They want to expand that footprint. Yeah. They basically have taken, I mean, whenever you advocate for these things, you know, it's a giant pain in the ass. Absolutely. I mean, just trying to figure out who to talk to and who to email and all that. They take all the guesswork out of it. They state the issue and then they, they put the action item at the bottom. They, they'll draft an email for you that's just like a placeholder, or you can draft your own. And then you put your name in there, sign your name, and send it out, and it goes directly to the people making the decisions. That's pretty cool. It's awesome. And you can see direct impacts on these issues um, that they've had their hand in. Hmm. Yeah. So that's a huge piece. I mean, that that side of it, the, the hunting uh, as a right side, but... In that same vein, because that's a legislative action, the habitat stamp, right, or access stamp, and man, I, I can't believe, and I know nobody on this, especially in today's economy, wants to hear about increased taxes, right? But the fact that we're talking about like a fraction of a percent of every sales tax that could go to conservation in your state, I don't know who would be against that. Um, what is it in Missouri? It's like 0. 0.06 or 0. 0.08. 0. 0.08. Yeah. 0. 0.08. Yeah. And, and it's, it generates like a hundred million dollars a year. It's, it's ridiculous. The amount. Yeah. It's I mean, nuts. Can, and I'm not saying that, I mean, if you're in Missouri, you should definitely still talk to your commission and yeah, where's you know, it going? Make sure what that are we the, doing? Yeah. Make sure, hold them accountable for where those funds are going. Yeah. But you just have way more to to use you got way more things you can do and there's just there's a night and day difference in like i said the wma is if you go from iowa to missouri yep. 
Yeah. And I'm I mean, assuming that's one reason why. Probably. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be. So, I mean, that's the stuff that, and, and, you know, I think as hunters, we, although we want to talk about action items and stuff, we often shy away from the conflicts. And I mean, we had Skip Sly on it. You know, Skip, Aaron? I don't know him particularly well, but some of my buddies know awesome him. Awesome guy. Well. Right. And Skip yeah. has really kind of opened our eyes to this whole lobbyist end. And it's like, these guys are doing what and they're trying to get what passed and it's you know as guys who think are, we're really in tune with what's happening we're completely out of the loop of these things until it happens and then it's like wait a minute what do you mean this just happened oh it's been lobbied for for 12 months and it's like then you're playing defense yeah yeah it's crazy 501c6 organizations man nuts um 501c6 is essentially a lobbyist organization that can go and they can play golf with senators and they can fund their campaigns and do all that stuff. 501c3s can't do that. Wow. So 501c3s can advocate for stuff, but they can't, they can't get in the mud and do the dirty work like the lobbyist organizations can. So a lot of times we end up playing defense instead of going on offense. I've had this discussion a bunch of times with Newberg. It's like step behind, man. Yeah, it's like, do we do we need to make a 501c6 organization become lobbyists? Like, I don't know anything about it that. It sure world. sounds like, I mean, to, to Skip's point, and this is directly affecting you, Warb, is uh, what it was, nine different bills in Iowa, I think? Eight or nine different oh, bills yeah. in Iowa. All of which would have, like, ruined Iowa deer hunting. Like, just yep. just completely killed it. And it's like, I mean, they had some they had serious money. They had for turkey hunting on there. They had what? They had, they were trying to at one point legalize 17 rifles for turkey hunting for spring turkey hunting. Like what? I don't know if, was it West Virginia or Virginia? You can hunt them with rifles. West Virginia. Out mm-hmm. east. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, we shared a lot of that stuff out because Corey was sending me updates on it. He's buddies with Skip. Yep. So yep. he's got his ear to the ground on all of that stuff. And yeah, I mean, they they got a lot of pushback on those, which, sounds like we're making some progress that is the good thing about social media and our platform is whenever yeah. we see stuff like that we can share it out and we can make a difference because we can inform people yeah, really make quickly. some noise but you're we're playing defense man mm-hmm. i wish there was a way we could be proactive and sort of head that stuff off because what happens is you play defense you get a bunch of support for it and then maybe the legislature pulls it off the table Yep. But all they do is they take it in the back room and they recraft it in yep. a different way. Take and try a couple to slide things out in two years back later. In. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, that hard. that was one thing that, you know, talk about Matt Ranella. Like Matt wasn't wrong about how those things are, especially from a manufacturing no. end and, and how some of these manufacturers are pushing some things through that, frankly, are not for the best of the wildlife and from the hunting community. It's just the way he goes about it is you know, in the next breath, he's saying, well, I wish they would contribute to my campaign to help this. And it's like, well, dude, you can't shit talk them and then come back and say, well, they should give me money for it too. I I think it's really interesting to hear Aaron phrase it like defense versus offense. Cause that makes me ask the question like to myself, it's like, what, what do we want? Like as, (laughs) you know, as hunters, like if we had the opportunity to play offense, like what is it that we would be advocating? Can for? we all agree on Can that? we agree on something? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I think we can all agree on habitat. Yes, I, mean, I would agree with that. What That's do you right. think, Jared? About habitat or what do we want in general? Yeah. No, habitat in general, just habitat for wildlife. Do I think we can agree on that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I think we all want more wildlife habitat. 
Yeah, and I, like I said, the non-consumptive users seem to be on board with that. Yes. Um, we can definitely, like, there's some laws that you can pass to kind of help the age structure or increase the size of the bucks. Like, uh, the, I think the antler point restrictions have been fairly good mm-hmm. um, in most places. Yep. Because in the way they structured those is they still allow kids to shoot whatever they want, mm-hmm. which I think is important. Mm-hmm. But then you, you know, your season hunters have to pass up year and a half old bucks. And in states like a Michigan where there's tons of deer around or PA, there's yep. plenty of deer. I mean, there's yep. lots of does to shoot. I don't see a, I don't really see much negative things resulting from that. So that was a good one that a lot of states have done. Yep. But, you know, going back to the habitat thing, the majority of people are going to, they're going to support that. I mean, like 25% of people support trophy hunting. Sure. The majority of people you know, just across the board, the general public period, 75% of them oppose it. Mm -hmm. So if you can, if you can find an issue like what we're talking about that you can unite on and make a, make a significant push that direction, the politics will follow. Right. If everybody is, if everybody is in step with that. Yeah. Um, just haven't figured out exactly how to, you know, unite everybody on the same page to do that. Cause we have a lot of division in our communities, our yes. social communities and within the hunting community. I mean, within the hunting industry, as you guys know, there's lots of bad apples out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some industry. good ones too, just with, just like with any industry. But yep. I think overall, most people would get on the habitat. Habitat boat. one would be good. I think access is the other one. I don't see anyone, yeah, I don't see why, I don't including see people would. Yeah, non-consumptive would be like, oh, I have more parks to go and bird watch or walk my dogs or whatever. Yeah, why wouldn't they? I think COVID has opened people's eyes to, we want more green space, right? We don't want to be in the cities. We don't need all this busyness around us. We would, we want more green space, some more natural space. So I think, mm. you know, and that I think is the key. You, you can't just have the hunters on board. You have to have the constituents of the majority, which is the non-hunters, the, the non-consumptive users on board to push this through at a legislator, um, you know, or wherever it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always going to be, you know, special interests on all sides. For sure. That are, I mean, it's hard to satisfy them all. That's why you, you know, you compete with so many different ones in these governments to get stuff done. But that would be a way we're looking, we're looking at that pretty, uh, heavily right now in behind the scenes stuff. I don't know if it's going to actually come to fruition. We're going to donate some money of our own to habitat, um, this next fall and, and winter, but I'm trying to think of bigger picture ways that we could you mm-hmm. know, touch more people across the country yeah. with it than just you know, what we can do as individuals. Small, small side of things in the hunting community, and, and we'll probably get yelled at for saying it, is Jared and I would like to see certain states not bait anymore. Sure. <laughs> it's, but, well, it's hard. It's hard to, like, you know. Oh, man. Like you said, dude, everything. Look at this. Look at the intent on this thing. I know. You guys know what this is. Yeah. Um, it's like crossbows and cell cameras and bait mm-hmm. and tss shot and you know mm-hmm. ultra realistic decoys and all that stuff can be fun but yeah where's you know, the line it may, yeah it's like at some point we we have to draw the line i mm-hmm. don't know when it will be but 
Some states are doing it. I've, what, Kansas? No, no cameras, well, no cell cams well, on public? That's where we're at, though. It's like it's hard to pivot from like the conversation that Jeremy and I have a lot, and it comes across as negative. It's not like I want to be having it, but it's like we're trying to protect you know what what we all have as hunters, which is like a, a, whatever the level of access is that we have, the, the way that it's done. It's hard to even like pivot from that and say, well, let's let's make more access. Let's do more habitat. Like it just seems seems like such a big feat when it's like we're struggling hard enough to protect what we have because it's being you know because of all the liberalization of seasons or of, of the weapons or of, of cell cameras you know stuff that uh, make it easier make it easier and transparently that we enjoy to a degree it's like boy it just seems like that is more rapidly uh, d- decaying the you know the access or the, the quality of the experience that exists currently it's like man that seems like a Seems like a fire that needs put out first before we can mm. go on the offense to, you know, Grow Im- improve things at the bigger picture. Yeah. But well, I, don't I don't know, know man. I, 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 like I said, I used to think that way, but then nothing happened. In fact, it kept getting worse. Mm. So it was like, you know, do you, do you just try to hold on to what you've got and hope that nobody takes it? Or do you go on offense? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's the that's the place I keep finding myself at is like, man, this these battles aren't going away. Yeah. They're not getting any better. And the op- the opposition is on offense. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah. So I don't know how well her how well our defense is gonna hold up over the long term. Mm-hmm. Like I I wanna see kids having opportunities to hunt in twenty or thirty years. Yep. Well and wh- if we you know, that's the biggest thing for me. Like, uh, on the recruitment side, I definitely agree. There's overcrowding issues that came from COVID. Some of that stuff is, is flattening out now, but on the recruitment side, the majority of our viewers are young families. They yeah. bring their kids to these shows and they talk to us all the time. And they talk to us about how, you know, thank you for doing what you're doing because the other option is my kid watching somebody play Fortnite on YouTube. Yeah. And instead we can watch you guys at night and get excited to take him out to the woods this weekend. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Hoyt Archery. Dude, where would we be without our Hoyt bows? Probably shooting crossbows. <laughs> or, or a Matthews. Yeah. <laughs> One in the same. Yeah. But in all seriousness, we love being Hoyt guys because you stand out. When you're in this room full of other people that shoot these other types of bows, I feel like the Hoyt guys just stick out. Dude, it's just a legit bow. I mean, th- th- especially that carbon riser, man. I mean, I-, I know that they've got several other aluminum lines as well. But for, for me, I'm shooting that RX-5 uh, in the carbon model. They've since come out with the RX-7. And uh, I can't tell you how much I love being a Hoyt guy amongst a sea four of Matthews guys. So we're out there, I think, pr- proving them wrong, shooting 80 pounds and uh, you know, killing stuff. Hey, man, if you want to get serious, get Hoyt. We're talking about all these things that make it easier to kill stuff, and I'm looking at these cell cameras over here, like, man, I have such a love hate relationship with these thing things. Oh, dude, it's I feel like the biggest hypocrite in the world when we, you know, we talk so much about I'm I'm firmly against baiting, not from an ethical standpoint, uh, p- but purely because of how it affects, uh, you know, hunting on on the landscape level. Like it's it's I see it as basically. And this is Ohio where I see this more than anything. So it's it's perfect yeah. culmination of hunter density coming from, you know, uh, from Pennsylvania, New York, Maryland, paired with, um, you know, the Midwest, I guess. Like there's some big, like my, my family's property is the perfect example. It's, it's a thousand acres of what you would think would be 
I mean, it's it's old pasture ground and stuff, but it should be able to be turned into the the deer mecca. Okay, and we've done a lot of that work, and we've tried to employ those management tactics. And the reality is, the distribution of wealth that that property should hold because of the work that we've done on it gets immediately distributed in a matter of a week or two around the gun seasons and and some of the you know later archery seasons and stuff by because the, of the bait because of the bait and dude that's happened in so many places um like there's a lot of people that don't want to bait that start baiting because their neighbors so here's the situation they, that i'm in and that jeremy's they in feel like we don't, don't have, have a choice. choice and so here i am saying i i hate that baiting exists i hate this as a thing and i'm going to go out and buy five thousand pounds of it so that i can be in the game yep yep and what am i That's supposed the trouble to do with it especially when you're introducing it to places like if you look at some place like texas they've had baiting down there for eons you know yep. and it's just ohio too part it's of the always culture. been legal always yep it's kind of been part of the culture down there so when i go down there and i hunt over bait it doesn't feel as it doesn't feel the same way but if i go to a state like what you're talking about where it's been adopted and then dropped and then adopted, then dropped or whatever. And the laws are always changing. Like there's several States now that have just brought it in recently. It's like, that's the boat that a lot of people are in. There's a small percentage of them that are just totally for it. But then everybody else slowly gets on board because they don't have a choice because their neighbors. Exactly. And in a state like Ohio, it hasn't changed. Baiting has always been legal. What has changed is the technology that we can use around or to take advantage of it. Cell cameras didn't exist, whatever it was, five five years ago. Uh, Straight wall cartridge rifles and and. Uh, I don't know if crossbows are recently legal in Ohio, well, but I mean, the, the technology the certainly improved, of, yeah. you know, uh, box blinds. All None of these things are inherently evil, right? They're all, you know, cool things, cool gadgets and stuff. Together, and, though. But, you know, the <laughs> ultimate culmination, and, and the one that I like to use in a, as an example, is like in Ohio, I can dump, a, you know, whatever, a 2,500-pound uh, corn pile and put a cell camera over it, and uh, during the late rut, and sit 100 yards away from it in a box blind with a straight cartridge rifle. Uh, and these kids are just mowing down three- and four-year-old bucks. And and great. I, I'm all for You know, but it's – and it's not just kids, you know, but that's – they have the earlier season. And it's like I just – I have a, a lot of issues with that from the start of – and more to your point, yeah, we'll just keep it rolling here. Uh, it's, it's just – it distributes that wealth. It's like it's, – it's not like I don't want other people to participate, but it's, it's not – it does seem right. You know, it just doesn't Yeah, seem- I agree. Well, it's like you, you put yourself in a box blind, um, and if you have that thing sealed properly with an Ozonics or something, you're not going to get smelled. So then you, you don't have to worry you about will wind kill anymore. Them. And Warp, in my experience, it's been eight years been hunting this farm. It's 100% of the time. It's there is yep, they don't gonna, they don't make it through. Which is what, you know, again, it's a distribution of kind of the, the wealth or the resource. But it's like you put all of this effort and all this money into a thousand acres to grow, you know, support, enhance habitat for these deer. They walk off the property under the five acres with the big corn pile and then die there. Yeah, in most and cases, it, most states that shouldn't happen. And it sounds and, selfish. I and I I understand that it comes across that way. It's not like, and I realize not everybody owns land or sure. has this or that. But like, whether it's mine or somebody else's, it just doesn't seem right that like somebody should be able to own a piece of land and and whether they're investing into it or not or whatever. But then, you know, when the time comes to capitalize on it, I can scoot scoot up next door and just dump a corn. It's pile. the one thing that I think a a public land guy and a guy who owns a lot of private land can agree on because I can't do it on public and I don't want to do it here. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I I agree with you. Like, there's a there's a certain point that you hit where it's just like, man, this stuff has just gone too far one direction. You know, there's just as a little too much gadgetry. I mean, I've been trying to get Miles involved, my oldest stepson, in turkey hunting recently, and he's hooked on it. But I can't tell you how much stress I put on myself before taking him. I was sure. like, I don't want to put him in a blind. I don't want him to use decoys at first. I actually kind of want to set up screwball so that a bird comes in and busts him. Yeah. I, like I, I'm thinking of like the perfect scenario because I was raised that way. Like, yeah, I, I'm trying to think back to my childhood. Like I ended up hooked on it and like I'm in it to win it for turkeys yeah. for the rest of my life. And we didn't kill nothing. The first three years we went, we got our asses totally kicked. My yep. dad didn't know what he was doing at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was a great experience. It's what you made you want it. Exactly. And eventually I got one and, and he was telling me like, man, I've hunted these things for 10 years and I just thought they were <laughs> unicorns, you know, or whatever. And we finally killed one of them and it was like, holy crap, we yeah. did it. Yeah. But then I've also taken kids out during those youth hunts and I put them in a blind with a decoy, roosted the birds, went into a perfect spot with a ton of gobblers. Bird flew down in the decoys and he shot him in the first 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Walked out there and kind of looked at it a little bit, thought that was cool. Next year comes around, doesn't want to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't really want to wake up early. It's or too in a easy. Few years. It's that failure that yeah, keeps us like, coming back, I, man. The suffering. Like, we we want it. Yeah. Right. You want, it, you want it to be. It, it's supposed to be a challenge. It's yep. no matter what it is, it you you're there's supposed to be some sort of woodsmanship involved at least that's what i that's the way i feel about it sure um and i'm not trying to cast shade on people that want to do it differently i mean my buddy nick has a lease in texas and they hunt corn piles all the time because that's the culture that he grew up in yep you know and that it's it's not like they're some big rich landowner down there that's in texas there's no public land there's yeah. almost none right um that they can hunt on and permission is almost impossible to get so leasing is their option mm-hmm. for hunting access and they got to drive like six eight hours from their place just to get to that piece yeah but it's the same thing down there he talks about that all the time it's like you know if we don't bait our neighbors do so yep. like yeah. why are we spending the money on this place to come down here and hunt animals that just want to be on the neighbor's property mm. eating their corn right hmm. Yeah, and it's it's t- it's a dynamic conversation because I think what I was trying to get across to you earlier, like is in Ohio, it's kind of a perfect storm because it, it, in Texas, I, again, a generalization, but like I want to say, and in Kansas, I think this is true also, like the tracts of land generally are bigger. Yeah, they're giant. Yeah. And I don't think that baiting has as big of an impact on the deer herd as it does in a state like Ohio because the average parcel size is so much smaller. Um, right. That makes a lot of sense. And so it's, it's not just like, okay, yeah, this guy's got 250 acres and this guy's got 250 acres and they each have two main corn piles. It's like, okay, here's three forties stacked up against each other and they butt up to 140 behind it. And all of them have two or three corn piles on it. And it's just like, it's, it's, you know, kind of, kind of madness. Yeah. And you don't really need it at the end of the day up there. I mean, you don't, well, listen, great point. If nobody was baiting, you wouldn't. But because everybody's yep. baiting, you do. You absolutely do. Oh, exactly. Exactly right. But I think about, like, if you were to take it away tomorrow, or is it going to hurt your hunter numbers? No, I don't think so. I mean, that's just a generalization on my point and just an opinion. So take that for whatever it's worth. But 
I think just as many people are going to hunt. What do you think, They're Jeremy? still going to have positive you, experiences Because you've said before, hunting. you think people will not, um, it'll decline. So I think that... Um, They'll struggle. Not, it, not as many deer gonna, will get killed. It's going to sure. ebb and flow. I think you'll lose hunters right away because people will say, it's too hard. I don't have time. It's No offense. It's just, We hear it all the time from, across, from, across, <laughs> from a crossbow guy. And I don't mean this in a bad way. It's like, well, why do you shoot? I don't have time to, to learn and take time and practice and mm-hmm. stuff. So it'll be the same thing. It's like, okay, no more corn piles. Well, I don't have time to go out and scout and do all this stuff. And like, I, so it'll drop off. But, and this is where I wanted to go before I had to take a leak because I, I was like gonna where you're going. Uh, the, the experience and then the quality. retention. Yep. Well, I mean, quality of the animal is going to jump. Quality of the, the experience is going to what I'm saying. And that is going to hold the young kids that we're talking about are going to go right into the loop that we experience, which is, man, you got to you got to grind a little bit. Yeah. You got to grind a little bit to see some results. And that's going to hook them longer yeah. and your retention is going to be better. This is exactly like the, the bass awkwardness that we're talking about from like the recruitment side of it. It's like the the recent recruitment efforts have been by the liberalization of the seasons. Here's an easier weapon. Here's, you know, more technology, which in the short term might be, get people there. But in the long term, the quality experience has diminished so much to where we're just shooting deer over corn piles from 100 yards away with straight wall cartridge rifles out of box lines over, you know what I'm saying, to... Is that, you know, that's what it is. Well, so what we were talking about, and th- we got this with Ronella, and I think this this was a good part of the discussion. One of my things is, we, and we've heard it, Warb, on the R3 side, is we've got to recruit um, because, you know, we're aging and the, the amount of hunters leaving, right, is greater than we can recruit. I don't know if anybody stopped and thought about the number of hunters leaving isn't just aging hunters as much as it is people who are current hunters who are like, man, this experience is yeah. dog shit anymore. Well, dude, the way, I don't want to do the this. The way to make hunting great again is to make hunting hard again. Yeah. And so if you're bringing in more people, right, and there's not enough place to put them, the experience for the existing people is going to be worse, and I think they're going to leave. So I think that it's almost the more people you put in, and this this is not a reflection of the recruitment from what I would call as the organic trickle, which is I hunt, my kids hunt type of thing. Not that. I'm talking like going outside the box for, for brand new, you know, the, I want to be, you know, uh, whatever field, the table kind of eat sustain and nothing against that. Recruiting hunters, new hunters, new to the new to everything around it is making the experience for existing hunters a little worse and it's pushing them out. So we're actually putting in a box that in my opinion is full and it's overflowing the people on the back end well, out. And here's the cherry on top those. I don't think it's just the number. I think it's the way that they're doing it. Sure. Opportunity. Yeah. There might be room for everybody that wants to hunt. It's just that if we can all do it over corn piles with crossbows and this and that, maybe not anymore. Yeah, because the retention on those There is room for everybody, um, but it's not equally distributed across the landscape. Not at all. You know, you you might have a county with, let's just call it, let's call public and private access by permission the same thing. Right. It's, It's basic access. Yep. Um, you might have a county that's got 10% of that access and 90% of it is not. Right. Um, well, where do you think 80 or 90% of the hunters are going to end up in that particular county? They're yeah. going to go on the where 10%. They have, <laughs> yeah. Right. They're not going to go on the other 90. Like right. if you spread, if you spread everybody out evenly across the landscape, then we have more than enough. Yeah. 50, mm-hmm. 50, the, you're good. Yeah. You're well, right. That, but that goes- we don't have that anymore. Um, and I would agree with you a hundred percent on the, on the, 
the gear side of things and making it too easy for people. Like that's, I mean, we hunt public land. I don't know. It doesn't get a whole lot harder than some of these places that sure. we deal with. Like it's not, it's just rough in some of them. Yep. But I, I think the other aspect of that, I mean, hunters are definitely aging out. And like I said, we were talking before you uh, left a while ago, Jeremy. My biggest focus is the young families right now that are getting their kids into hunting. Yep. Like most of our viewers are, they're 30-year-old adults that hunt yep. or have had some experience hunting before. And now they're trying to get their kids involved in that and they have to compete with all of these other interests now that we didn't used to have yep like you've got you know four baseball teams in a year now instead of one you've got all these different screens yep you've got all this short form content that is attention grabbing they yep. don't know what to do with it we didn't have that when we were kids we had some form of that but it was nothing nothing close to the point that it Rocks is now yeah. yeah i was playing <laughs> yeah. in the mud <laughs> so those right exactly um so those are the people that those are the people that i deal with the most that watch our stuff like yep. that's the core demographic um is is hunting families with young kids that they're trying to get involved and i think a big part of it is for current hunters, including like guys in our group that have been at this a while is our expectations. Mm -hmm. So when we were kids and we grew up in the deer camp culture, the late nineties, I don't remember. I mean, we went to camp and we hammed it up with our buddies and went out to whatever piece of property we had permission on and shot Brownings down. Yep. I mean, agree four corns and whatever. Yep. Um, and we occasionally somebody would get a big buck and they'd bring it back and be like, Oh man, you got a nice eight pointer there yep. or whatever. Yep. Or man, he's wide as his ears or yep. something. I agree. I mean, and now fast forward, you're like, okay, that's a four and a half year old buck that I've been watching for two years. And he's, you know, got four inch bases and he's 147 and three eights or whatever. And it's that that's, and I'm not saying there's a right way and a wrong way to look at this. There's not, but I feel like, and guys, our age, our expectations have changed a lot from that time frame. Mm -hmm. But to your point, when we were kids, we still had to, you still had to go out there and earn it. Oh, you yeah. had to work pretty hard. You were grinding for it. You were grinding just to get one. Mm -hmm. And then when you got one, everybody was happy for you you took it down to the check station and you got to check out everybody else's deer that they were killing. It was, it was a good social, like the social aspect of hunting was real strong, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we've, we've kind of strayed away from that in multiple directions that have led to some of these poor experiences that you're talking about. But I do think that it does go back to your own personal expectations about what you want to get. Like we hear this on public land all, all the time. It's like, we'll, we'll run into a local guy that's coming out. It's like, man, deer hunting around here ain't worth a darn yeah um it hadn't been worth a darn for eight years you know or 10 years or whatever and he's packing up and going home and then we go in there and kill something yeah and it ain't because we're good hunters i can tell you that firsthand we're just average hunters but if we do have one thing in our group it's optimism mm -hmm. and that keeps us out there in the woods mm -hmm. and if 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 you're listening to this and you're thinking about dropping out of hunting that ain't no, like, you're definitely not going to that. That's not going to move the needle for you at all. You're going to take this out of your life and maybe replace it with something else. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, and it just comes down to personal preference. I mean, I got buddies of mine that are extremely pessimistic that won't set foot on public land and they never will just because they have this 
they have this thing in their head that it's like, oh, there's people out there. Yeah. I'm not dealing with other people. They're going to ruin my hunt. It's going to be awful. It's trash. Yeah. Um, I'm not. Yeah, it's trash. Mm. They've already got that that pessimistic view in their mind, and there's nothing I'm going to do to change it. But then I go out there, and if I get one, and I show them, they're like, oh, well, you just got lucky or whatever. Right. It's like, no. I just yeah. didn't let those, I didn't set up those mental barriers in my head going into it. Mm-hmm. I, I, li- I like the response of like, uh, of our expectation. I, th- I think that's really important. Like it just, uh, if somebody is dissatisfied, like with the experience, like y- you should change that, you know, and, and you can go kind of one of two or, or maybe more ways. Like, you know, if we assess for ourselves, like, you know, cause we have hunted a fair amount of public land, probably not as much as you have, but we, you know, we've, we've gone out there and it's because of lack of access. Um, or whatever. It just, mm-hmm. that was the, that was the, that was That's the lowest hanging fruit. You know, if we're going to go out of state, we're like, where can we hunt in Kansas? Well, yeah. there's public land. Let's try that. Yep. And, uh, you know, with, with mis- uh, mixed experiences. And, uh, so ultimately I think it, it drove us to like, you know, we had some, we had some bad or whatever, relatively, you know, situations that we wanted to avoid in the future. We're like, well, you know, whatever, I, you know, we have one week to do this. We're getting walked under all the time or, or whatever. So we can, you know, our options are we go to another piece of public, like let's keep bouncing around on options. That's, that's one thing yep. we can reduce our expectations. We can say, well, you know, and, and that frequently happens over the course of a week. You know, we go in there, hey, four-year-olds are bust. And by day yeah, three, by four, the end of the week, you're yeah. like, oh, yeah. 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 I'd shoot about anything right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, or, you know, yeah. you, you hold to your standard and you, you, th- you, you try to figure something out. Get you know, creative. You, buy, you, you yeah. buy property. You find, you know, you get you permission. Lease. Yeah, something. You know, and you, so we're like, Jeremy and I are like, because we have guys, like my, my uncle is, is one of them. He's like, he would be, you know, on our piece of property in Ohio, he's like, well, just seems like it's it's almost impossible to, to grow a deer at a four or five years old. He's like, I would rather reduce my expectations. And, you know, I can understand that perspective sure. from him. He's been hunting a long time and he's older and, you know, whatever it is, injuries, life, you know, things play into decisions that you make. I'm young, able, capable. I, I'm going to do what I can to find a way to shoot big old mature bucks. Like if I have to work harder and sacrifice to buy property or... Get access Uh, to another piece. And I sympathize with not everybody has that opportunity. I really do. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you, if you can, and you want to change the situation, like you should. I think, I think the expectation thing too, we talked about this on the last podcast war, but, and it's a hard thing to describe, but like, um, I'm at the point in my life where I would rather just hunt all season and just have just a ball, like just be out in the woods and loving it and not tag a thing, then shoot something that doesn't, that one but, would end my season and two would not necessarily meet what I wanted to happen. But along with that, you want to, it has to be possible. You want, I want it to be mm, feasible. You don't want to hunt just to hunt. You want to hunt because it could happen. I'm chasing a goal. I'm right. chasing something. Right. Yeah. Right. The, the, the thought of it being possible is out there. Yeah. yeah. Like it wouldn't be fun to just hunt Pennsylvania public land day in and day out holding out for a 200 or bust. No. Right? No. That's not realistic. Expectations have to come back into check. Yeah. For sure. Um, but could I hunt a mature buck? Yeah, I do it. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and I've done it, and it's, but I don't do it often. Yeah. You know, and so I'm okay. Which is the right, that's the right 
I'm okay sure. if That's I don't want fill there. the tag, right? Because um, I'd re- again, in a weird way, I explained this to somebody of you the last time. Is like, I just I want to just be able to. I love hunting and being out there so much. That's why I hunt so many different states. Is if I fill a tag in Pennsylvania, I go to Ohio, yeah, or I go to Kentucky. Like, if it was just done, I mean, I can't handle that. I mean, those are expectations that are high on the chart for most people but like you said you guys have been at it a while yeah you're young you're able right now there's nothing wrong with setting goals and going for that and it sounds Um, snobby but it's it's not because we're just like oh like this year if it's not a booner it's nothing it's it's, not that it's that we just want to set that goal so high that it pulls us through the season chasing something. Wow. We're looking for the sure. premium experience, which, like, if, if you're yeah. honest about it, you want a most mature animal with as big of antlers as possible in, like, the, the best possible hunting. So you want them to come ripping through on November 7th chasing a doe. And it's like, we all dream of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's we're trying to, like, balance hard, easy access, not, like, you know, all the stuff that we used to get to that point to, like, make it the best experience, best memory, best outcome possible. And it's... To- but to Warb's point, there is a flip side of that, and it's probably from growing up in the deer camp mindset, and we enjoy it for one week a year in Kansas, which is our deer camp. And yes, Jared and I want to kill a, a big mature buck in Kansas, but we have our dads in camp with us. We've been doing it for two, three years now. And like at the end of the, the week, like we always go into it. We're like four bucks or bust, man. Like this is the year. We come out with one and like a lot of arrows shot. Awesome. And, but it's, yeah. it is the, we leave there with more memories than we probably make the entire rest of the season. I'll tell you what, too. This is cool. That Our expectation, I think, for that trip has kind of changed. Absolutely. Over time. We used to go to Kansas with like, the intention of shooting booners and or bust, right? Like that, that was, and it. we were okay if we didn't, and we still, one. you know, hold out hope for that, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, and we've passed some great deer and stuff down there. But since the introduction of bringing our dads to that, I think it's, we've right, uh, digressed there a, a bit. Like our expectation is more like, how do we give the dads the best experience possible? And like Jeremy and I really we're get support. a kick out of yeah, that. We're the support team basically. Yeah, and that's changed. Well, these things have really and flow that. like you guys are talking about. I yeah. mean, you you go from one state to another. You go from one property to another. Sure. Like if, if you're on public land in PA, yep. you're you're hoping to get a shot at whole a nice diff- yeah. three-year-old buck <laughs> yes. in a whole season of hunting with a bow, maybe. Yes. Yep. You know, but if you jump over into Ohio or Kentucky and you're on a big piece of private land, like Jared says, you're holding out for a four- or five-year-old buck yep. on a piece of ground where you have more control over that's the only thing um, is that there there is such a wide array of expectations at play. Even if you take away all the gear and everything else, there still is going to be people that on public are just over the ridge that are just there for that one gun weekend a year and brown it's down. Yep. They're there. They're there for their family deer camp, whatever. Um, or they're new to bow hunting and they've got one buck down and any two-year-old buck that comes through is going to meet their expectations for the year. It's going to make their season. Yep. So there's really people at all these different stages. I just think when we reach the, the pinnacle, like where you guys are at right now of expectations, we have to remember those stages Absolutely. that we came through because there's other people at those stages right now too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's, we see that on public land a you know, a lot. I'm, and I, it's just, uh, running into, especially in Iowa, like during our gun season, party hunting's allowed. Oh yeah. So it is a 
it is a complete circus out there during the first shotgun season. But those guys only get together. Like I know a lot of local folks in the community, they don't even buy a bow tag. They just buy a a shotgun tag to party hunt with their buddies and Mm -hmm. they just mow as many of them as they can and donate them to people and eat the deer and have a deer camp experience. Yeah. And at the same time, I'm looking at it like, man, they're killing a lot of one and two year old bucks on this property that, you know, could potentially be four or five years old in a couple of years, but it's at um, a level I of think experience. that that's how, I, yeah. that's a, I think our hunting tradition can be preserved in that. Mm-hmm. Like it, it has, it has existed now for a while with those expectations, with those varying expectations mm-hmm. and it can be done. Yeah. Um, but like we were talking about a while ago, not to go back to it, but the gear thing is a little bit different. Like that's something that has changed dramatically a lot well, over time. And like and Borb, to your point, not to interrupt you there, but you talk about your stepson and and I feel it with my kids. We've mentioned it a ton of times. You know, they're growing up in this gear phase, right? Th- this is all they know. Like they all all they know is dad looking at his his cell cam and being like, "Damn, that's a great buck in Kentucky," and I'm sitting in Pennsylvania. My worry for them, and to, almost to the point where you were kind of like engineering this turkey hunt in there for your stepson is like i uh i want them to enjoy it i want them to see deer but i also want them to earn it and this is not a disrespect to anyone out there but you know if i took them out and they shot a five-year-old 150 on the first sit they're not gonna they're not gonna stick with it they just aren't i i I can guarantee that they probably nine out of ten of those kids will not stick with it long term it'll just be too easy that goes back to that retention thing you're talking about. That's why some of these agencies really struggled when they went to those youth seasons. Yep. They they went to those youth seasons, you know what? I mean, some of them 20 years ago. Yep. And at first, they, they still are a good thing um, overall. I think the pros outweigh the cons in most cases. But they went to those, and all of a sudden, they're recruiting all these kids that they didn't have. So it's like their youth hunter recruitment is reversed. Mm-hmm. But then they realize, like five to ten years into this, like crap, we're not retaining any of these kids because mm-hmm. we're giving them the best weekend to hunt for turkeys. Yeah, we're giving them the best weekend to hunt for deer. Yeah, we're removing all of the the other factors like other hunters. Yeah, from the landscape so they can hunt. We're giving them the best weapon possible. Yep, and they're going out there and, you know, even as parents, some people set them up like you said to shoot a five year old yeah. one fifty the first time out. Yep, and that happens and then the kids don't the kids Why would have to work they? for it yeah i mean it, it's right. it's just like it's super easy huh. and i mean or huh. 5 years later they end up in the real world which is there are no special seasons you're going to have guys all over you and you're like this sucks like i don't want to do this anymore i mean dude how do you, how do you right. recreate and then like, they drop out they drop out they're gone how do you how would you yep. even go about recreating like and you know, it's almost like you wouldn't wish it on people like our upbringing or the way that we like came, came into hunting like each of ours you know, all three of us, I'm sure is a little bit different, but there's surely going to be a, a lot of struggle and failure put in there. And also like waiting, you know, the, huh. the fact that, yeah. uh, and I was talking with somebody about this the other day. It's like, dude, the time that I probably was the most, obs- you know, I'm still pretty obsessed with hunting, but like when I was like, just, I was just totally bramming over the top is when I was like 10 and 11 years old. Right. Cause I couldn't hunt until yep. I was 12 years old. And I was like, I could, I, I was, I knew I was missing out on something at that point. And I would wake up early and like, I had sat on with some hunts, duck hunts with my yep. dad and stuff. And I was like, this is, I cannot wait to be able to like participate in this. And like, 
That's where the mentor program has been good, but I also think it's not, it could be abused. Well, and I I don't know. I'm not saying that that's right in today's day and age because there are so many other things, you know, all the screen distractions, the things to pull away, but it's like, it it was the waiting and it was the failure, you know, dude, it took me however many years, six, seven years to kill a deer with my bow, like successfully, um, that I think is what instilled the passion that I, that's still burning in me today. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you don't want to wish it on anybody, but it's like you almost, they have to go through it to, to get that level of, of, of passion from it. Yeah. I mean, the deer camp thing is what I usually come back to because deer camp in general is a, it's a, it's almost like this heritage thing that you create within your group. And most deer camps have a hierarchy in there of people. They've got kids, they've got folks that are just there to gun hunt for a weekend. Then they also have experienced hunters in it. And when you introduce kids into that or new people in general, then they get this whole sort of melting pot of perspectives about hunting all in one place. Right. And you can sit down and have conversations about it for a, you know, a lengthy period of time instead of this isolating yourself away from that. Yeah. And that's where that sort of that, uh, I guess, the social aspect of deer hunting or just hunting in general was so important to me growing up. I felt the exact same way that you did, Jared. I was the I was the same kid, um, except the difference back then was like I would go to school and tell my buddies about it in a rural community. And like my buddies also went out for opening day. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, you deer hunt, too. It's like, oh, yeah, my family's got a deer camp over here. My family's got one over here. And then you get older and then you've got this support group that you're also running around with and you're learning things with. And I, that, that seems to kind of diminish now with the way technology is, it's like uh, kids are in the phone, you know, they're and when the boys go to school, nobody else hunts. Yeah. Like they go to a big school. There's like, there's like one other kid in miles's class that hunts that I'm aware of. Um, the rest of them don't. And some of them fish, but yeah, he's playing that hunter call the wild game the other day on the TV. And I was asking him like, does any of your buddies play this game? He's like, no, everybody plays call of duty and Fortnite." And yeah. like, if I want, if he's going to play a video game, I want him to be playing the hunting game. Right. That's yeah. what I want. I don't want him to be on some of these other ones, sure. but I just think of how different that, that dynamic is. That's a weird college. The one that I, I grew up in. I mean, we got, first day and I, I think kids still do we get the first day of rifle off deer season rifle in pennsylvania it's it's changed now it's on saturday but we still get monday off uh, most schools do yeah for now um but i mean that was that was the thing and again that de- that deer camp mindset that barrier of like you had to be 12 mpa to hunt was like the anticipation like you said that 10 and 11 was like man you were just you were drooling to be involved to just be part of the group um, and, and transparently Harlan, my youngest killed his first doe at what well, he, he just, he was about to turn five, turn five. Um, well, and did, uh, you know, obviously I don't even have to say it, but like, there's nothing wrong. I don't, it's not like I'm saying there's something wrong with what you're doing with no, your kid. Like, no, no, no. I don't know what, uh, how, what to do. I well, don't I mean, I have we're, the fear we're looking of, at what the three of us did and we're yeah. like, well, that worked. We all love hunting. Yeah. I have the fear <laughs> of how do I keep him engaged? And he's, he's different, but his brother, um, who's 11 has killed a couple bucks. And, and by the time he was, 11, I didn't kill him. I killed my first year when I was 12. Um, you know, he doesn't have near as much interest mm-hmm. in it. And it's like, shit, did I make it too easy? You know, it, or maybe he just doesn't want to, you know, he likes to go out every once in a while, but well, not all the time. You know, dude, there are seasons of life, too. Like, I, if I, 
look back yeah, it on it. Yeah, ebbs and flows. I yeah. mean, who knows? Yeah. If I look back honestly at my, like, because I, what hooked me was my spotlighting with my uncle, right? Yeah. I was like, you know, here's somebody I really respect and look up to. And there's a super cool thing that we can sneak. And I think this is awesome. That's what hooked me. But then there was like years through, you know, whatever, middle school and high school where I'm like, I, I hunted, you know, and, yeah. I, and I always kind of have. And, but like, there certainly were probably other priorities at other point. In t- it, it took me a while to come back around to like once, sure, you know, I was kind of done with sports and I was kind of out of school and I was like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And so it probably was, it probably was like getting into that college age and I hunted, don't hear me wrong. I, I trapped and I hunted through high school and stuff, but like I got obsessed like in that, in that end of high school going into college years where I was like, I have a little bit of ability to do this on my own. I got a driver's license. I've got a freedom. And I was, there was no looking back, you know, Mm -hmm. everything I've done since then is to get more access and kill bigger and more deer, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's the kind of the stages of a hunter. Yeah, you know that's where, and that's they say once you get beyond that next stage, is you become a sportsman and you start. You know, you reach a certain age where a lot of folks are just they're not focused on killing so much anymore as they are just taking kids or getting involved in conservation or advocacy. Hundred percent, you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah. And I think we're all three in that same boat we, right now yeah. where we're still young enough and we're trying to go, 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 yeah. you know, and get to as many states as we can and just get as much experiences as we can while yeah. we can. You know, you know and I, don't, I don't really think there's anything wrong with any of them. No, to be honest, you know, I think it, it's just nat- a natural progression. You know what's interesting, Aaron, Where, is technology almost seems to have re- like reversed the roles in some senses. So like the same uncle that I'm talking about was, you know, brought me up in hunting and and uh, was influential and stuff. It's like now that I'm the one doing the work on the farm and that I'm the one running the cameras, I'm the one hanging the stands and stuff. It's like he's looking to me and my dad is looking to me of like, hey, put me on these big right. gear. And it's a very, it's a really weird dynamic shift you know and it's almost like it's a blessing and a curse that information that technology is like that's what kills deer ultimately and it's hard to like you know be the disseminator of information that's like you know i decide who kills deer right. and who doesn't i don't you know, i don't envy people in that position well, i think that level thing because of the gear right that we're talking about what's weird is we all just kind of talked about that level that we went through to where we are even today if somebody comes into hunting today because of the tools that they have and the gear that they have, I feel I've seen it already. There's people skipping four levels to go right to here. They're like, yep, I'm going after, you know, giant mature bucks in Iowa. And it's like, how many bucks you've killed? None. But like, that's, that's what I'm, you know, that's my mind. And it's like, well, dude, like, you know, don't be afraid to like climb the ladder, like to get, you know, get your feet wet and stuff. And it's just, I think a lot of that, and we talked about it was not, it's social pressure, right? It's the peer pressure sure. of like, if I'm 35 and getting into this and I go out and shoot a, you know, a one-year-old six point, I can't put that on social. Like people are going to be like, what the hell? Like, oh, that's nice, nice Bambi, dude. You know, it's just, that is, that is something that none of us dealt with growing up. Yeah. Right. And, and so all of a sudden that comes into play and I think people are skipping steps and I think that's leading to the retention falling off. Check again. this out, I dude. Agree. Here, here, well, I here, agree. here's a kind of a counter or like a here's why. It's like, I mean, dude, if you're going out and sitting over a corn pile from 100 yards away with a rifle, yeah. you should be shooting a big buck. Like how you, you better be. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, you, you sure as hell that's have a better. That's not me saying you, you better. better. It's just like you have a better you? opportunity to actually yeah. accomplish it. Yeah, sure. I wor- I worry about that stuff too because I ca- we kind of shield the boys away from that, but I know they're gonna encounter it. Absolutely, like it's they're gonna have to deal with it at some point. So it's like, how do you introduce them to that? You know, in that in that conversation you were you had with Matt, Matt is very much against the social media side of things, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's okay. But the way that I look at it is, man, I mean, you're, you're going up against an immovable object here. Absolutely. Like social media is global communication. Now it is here. um, Whether we like it or not. And we need to be present on that platform to have a voice. If we're not, then like I, I used that example a while ago of the different, you know, parents that come up to us and thank us for putting videos out because the choices for their kids <laughs> yeah. are worse. Yep. It's like, yes, at the end of the day, would I rather there be no social media so they could just focus on going hunting and fishing and, you know, playing outside. I, I, yeah, that would be great, but, but it's not reality. They don't. That's yeah. not reality. So how do you combat that? That's, that's why we do what we do is to give them an alternative it's like like i said with the video game option a while ago i want to throw that xbox in a lake i mean sure i don't like that thing at all but if he's going to be on it i'd rather him be playing a game about hunting or fishing yep. that at least has his mind turning in that direction to get outside i agree rather yeah. than playing call of duty or whatever it is i mean you're you're trying to you're given a little bit mm-hmm. to keep their attention on it you gotta adapt because no matter what you do times are going to change and yeah this stuff is here to say here to stay we have to find a way to exist with it yep yeah i think that's where the adaptation comes in on the social side and you know uh, um i think that you just have to understand and, and this has been i think a tough thing for most people like especially a guy from pennsylvania is like all of a sudden i'm seeing all these big bucks from kansas and iowa and illinois and i have to realize like that's not where i'm at like it, yeah, you know. I mean the hunt. I looked at the just the number of people that live in PA in Michigan versus the number of people, not hunters, just people yeah. that live in Iowa or Kansas. <laughs> yeah. It's like ridiculous. I mean, it's 10, 20 times the number. Yes. Yeah. So you're you're naturally going to have more people there, and like we said, if you want big bucks, you have to remove people. Yep. Correct. You have to remove opportunity. It's the expectation you have, of your situation is what it comes down to. Yeah. And the expectation is right. Like you can still kill bucks in those areas of Michigan and PA. Sure. It's just way, way harder. And Absolutely. you gotta spend you gotta try way, way harder. You gotta spend more time mm-hmm. and you've gotta be much more competitive because you've gotta share the woods with so many more people. But you know, you look at Kansas and the amount of public land they have versus PA and the amount of public land they have. Yep. It's night and day. Absolutely. Um yeah. So there's good and bad things to both places. You know, I really love PA and Michigan for that deer camp tradition that they have. Agree. Um, but on the flip side, it is nice to go to a Kansas and, you know, be able to see huge bucks rutting out in the open in the middle of November. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the hard awesome. part of this conversation is like, you know, if we funnel back to like, well, you know, these places are getting saturated or, you know, Kansas is, I used to draw every year in Kansas. Now it's every other year, whatever it is. The fact is, is we're still, the three of us are all still encouraging people to get out there and experience something else. 
Like if you've only ever hunted Michigan or Pennsylvania, put in for Kansas. Every other year, you could go out there, go experience Kansas because it'll blow your mind. Sure, or don't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah or don't. You know, well, that's, you, that's the other aspect to it though, too. Like you said, if if you're if you're hunting primarily public land, and you put enough people on the landscape that it hurts the resource and the yeah. experience degrades, that that doesn't make any sense. Like, sure. if that continues to happen, we don't have a resource to hunt. The state can't sell licenses because the experience is so poor for everybody. Yep. And then people drop out and then it ebbs and flows back the other way. Like that's what we've seen in some states is mm -hmm. like if you go to one state that's really, really popular at the time, mm -hmm. like we haven't hunted Illinois, but I know Illinois is a popular one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Over um, the counter too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've never hunted deer there, but um, hope to at some point, but just haven't got around to it. Anyway, that's a popular state. If you put enough people it, and you restrict access enough for people and they all go into one place and the experience starts to degrade, the people will drop out. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, then the experience will, it will go back the other way. Yeah. So the states have to manage that balance. It does not serve them or the hunters for them to pump so many hunters into a piece of, of yep. public land that it totally destroys the resource. I, mean, I, I know there's people that get flustered about that. Like in Matt's case, he doesn't like that at sure. all. But it the, it doesn't serve the state to do that. Well, that's like, why the why West, they... yeah, the Western states, Iowa, Kansas as well. Like, that's why they all have draws, right? There is a cap. Yeah. There's a cap of non-residents coming in. And, and and I agree, and I think maybe Matt said it, um, the priority should go to the residents of that state. Absolutely. Right? Whoever the resident of that state is, they should absolutely have the mo the best opportunity, the best access, whatever. Like, they should have the preference to do it. But these states that are having lottery draws and applications, they're putting a threshold to try to minimize oversaturation of access to some of these places. Now, things like Illinois, Missouri over the counter, Ohio over the counter, they could. They could easily see that resource get way too uh, hammered because they're over the counter, you know, until they put some sort of threshold in there. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I'm... I would weigh, I think there's lower hanging fruit than like just the number of hunters. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, in Ohio, I think it's the baiting thing. Sure. It's like if, if I. In if Kansas, I, it is too, probably ultimately. Yeah, may, maybe, you know, and every state's going to be different based on the habitat that's there, the, the, the hunter numbers and stuff. But it's like, you know, I'd hate to, you know, cut, start cutting people off from being able to hunt there when there's other things that I think could be done away with that would improve Agreed. the experience for everybody. Yeah. And then ultimately, you know, if that doesn't, you know, remedy it, then, yep. then yeah, you it's have a to baby step versus a big jump to let's stop X amount of people from coming in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Western and the Western dynamic compared to ours out East is an interesting one because in some ways it's similar and in some ways it's different. You know, you have, you have a limited number of elk in these mountain ranges. Right. Um, for the amount of people that want to hunt them. Yep. And they, they live in very specific areas. Now, consequently, a lot of those areas are public land. Yeah. So it's when people do have tags, they have opportunities to hunt them. So they have to manage, they've got to cap that because they don't have an unlimited resource. It's actually a pretty small resource they're dealing with, especially with elk and mule deer. Yep. Yeah. For but sure. on whitetails out east, we have a fairly large resource across the board. Like there's a lot of deer, even in these states with a lot of people and a lot of hunters, yep. there is a lot, lot of deer. Of deer. Mm -hmm. There may not be a lot of trophy deer, but there's a lot of deer. Mm -hmm. like there's a there's a high supply of them and there's 
and PA is is different than some because they you guys have a decent amount of public land, but the majority yep. of the states they're ninety percent private. Yeah, it's lacking out east. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when that access goes away, and they and people are have only the ten percent, or they only have the option like what you guys are talking about, and I I see no problem with working hard to lease or buy ground to hunt. Like like I said earlier, long term that may be a benefit for wildlife because those people care about wildlife and they're not going to bulldoze everything. Sure. So that's a good thing. Sure. But you know, you're also, you go back to that expectation hierarchy. You're only the people that are going to work hard enough to do that are at the top of that expectation hierarchy. So what do you do with everybody else that's down below that? Golf. That just wants to get out <laughs> a weekend a year to shoot a deer, Sorry, you know, yeah. they're out. It's like, yeah, they don't, all they have is, that 10 percent yeah and that's a that's the problem that i see like you said earlier jeremy it's a problem that's been sort of it's been in the oven cooking for 20 oh, yeah. years and it's been getting worse yeah. and then COVID happened and then now a spotlight is on yeah, it's like it holy is. crap yeah this is yeah. this is what we're dealing with and now it's dropping back off again like i said about georgia earlier georgia lost 20 30 percent of its turkey hunters in 22 wow. versus what they're five-year average was before that their Mm. numbers just dropped off a cliff um but a lot of states are coming back to the mean now after that covid peak but that covid peak should teach us something it's like this is a this is an issue that we have to deal with yeah and habitat and access are the two biggest ones yeah which basically tells us yeah we're not ready to take a mass you know, consumption of new hunters. We don't, we, we don't know what we could do with them. I mean, that, the fact that it jumped up like that and listened to all the experiences we're talking about, right. And now we're back down because we couldn't hold them. It was a probably yeah, they have to have a place to go. They got to have a place to if go. They don't have a place to go. They're not going to, they're not going to keep going. So you almost have to cater a little bit here to the retention of your existing community. You got to take care of your existing community while expanding the opportunities of resource access habitat to be able to recruit. Yeah. And like Jared's saying on the gear point, like if you restrict some of those things and make it a little bit more difficult, I don't, I really don't think this is, this gets back to just my opinion, of course. So you take this and throw it wherever. I mean, but I don't think that, you know, making it more difficult for people will keep them out. Like it didn't keep us out when we were kids. Oh, dude, it 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 lit and a we fire didn't know what in we us, were doing. man. I mean that that thing. The the more you failed, the more you just wanted it. I mean that's right. that's how we were brought up. Yeah, I mean I get it to a certain degree. Like I'm not going to drag the boys out there when it's a blizzard and make them sit in a sure. tree for eight hours. Here's straight. a sterno can. <laughs> hey, w- yeah. if we're hooked enough, we'll do it on our own. Too. I sat through many a blizzard yeah. and I was like, this is awesome. Well, but, but here's the fine line is I would rather take my kids out a field and, you know, miss opportunities on deer or turkey, uh, hear them, but not get on them. It just be out there. than take them out there. And every hunt is run into guys, run into guys, run into guys, run into guys, sure. right? The, the sure. experience of grinding and failing versus really never even being in the game because it's just constantly interrupted. That's the point that we keep trying to make to a lot of people on the public land side when they're like, well, you know, I just have to dodge these guys and these guys and former strategists. Like, I don't want that. I want the challenge of messing up and screwing up on that deer or turkey over and over again. I don't want to have to be running to guy, running to guy, running to guy, finally kill that turkey because nobody was out on a Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And I don't mind that challenge personally, but I'm also, you know, I don't want that for the kids. Exactly. I don't want to take, I don't want to take a kid out there. It's like a safety precaution. Exactly. So that is a good thing where the, they've scheduled some of these youth hunts so that kids can be out there and low not pressure. have the competition. Yeah, low pressure. But so, so that's a pro of the youth hunts. But like we talked about earlier, the mentorship thing is an issue. Because if then you make it too easy and you stick them in a box blind over a corn pile with a rifle or whatever, and they shoot the first deer that, or, you know, the first buck that walks up there and have to wait 10 minutes. Yep. Like they didn't, yeah, I think there's a way there. you can still have that youth hunt and that youth opportunity yep. for the kids to make it a little bit easier, but you take away some of these you have modern to. gizmos. That, you have to. Yeah. Uh, and there's a balance there that, uh, it feels like we could reach where we could still maintain their interest at that. I age. think we would retain so many more hunters by just making a little bit more difficult. Like I'm not talking about take away a ton of stuff, just a couple things, tweak a couple things. And sure, maybe the success rate drops, but your tension will increase. And I know it's so hard for certain people to think the counterintuitiveness there but the success drops a little bit and your retention will go up because they'll just want it a little more. Man, we turkey hunted with in Mississippi this year with what I believe are some of the very best, you know, hunting fathers, hunting mentors that I've been around like Josh Thrash and Keith Polk. Those guys have their kids in the woods nonstop. And it was so interesting to watch them take their kids turkey hunting. And we were going during the Mississippi youth season. Mm -hmm. So like it's before the regular season. It's before every, all of us big That's guys. That's early, early March, right? Early, early. Yes. So the kids have the advantage of getting out there and not having to deal with the competition. But he, neither one of those guys made it easy on those, those kids. Like, I mean, they weren't out there being strict. They wanted them to have a good time. They made sure that it was a fun experience for them. But. They were always like Josh would say, Reed, why don't you come up here now? Who, even though he can do it, he can get the bird to gobble. But he said, Reed, you, you've been practicing your owl hoot in the shower. Why don't you owl hoot? Reed gets up there and does it once. Nothing. He's like, well, dad, it didn't work. He's like, well, we'll try it again a few minutes later. Now, Josh knows the whole time there's a turkey in a, in a tree, 150 yards <laughs> right. away, but he's not doing it for him. He's letting the yeah. kid. Yeah get the experience and then read out who in the bird goblin and his eyes got that's it man big. yeah sucks so like that's how you and we're hunting on private and public land a little bit with the kids but just watching those guys and how they how they've thought about this through you know several years of mentoring other people as well how they've sort of structured sure. that for their kids and now all their now that's all they want to do their kids just want to go with them anytime and it, it's it's the closest thing that I've seen to what our childhoods were like. Like we've all discussed, we've had similar sort of entrances into hunting, and it all all three of them worked. Mm -hmm. And I can see that happening with these kids. It's really cool to mm -hmm. watch. So I mean, anytime anytime we can show that on our channel, I feel good about it. Just it's to try to set a good example for folks that are mentoring kids. But there was not a lot of fancy gear involved in all that. Yeah. It was basically just turkey calls in a in a twenty gauge shotgun, mm -hmm. you know, with shooting ranges at forty yards and in. That's another big thing Josh and Keith both did. Sure, it's like we had a gobbler at forty five yards and they would not let not him shoot let him it. not sign They're him like, off on nope. it. Yeah. Yep.
He's just a little too far, even though he could have probably killed him. Yeah. You know, he definitely could have killed him with TSS and three inch shells, whatever. He could have killed him at 60, but he didn't want that. He's like, no, we not quite there. We just don't want to spook him. We'll come back in here and we'll try him another day. Hmm. Yeah. This whole conversation has got me just like reliving like my, you know, just falling, falling in love with hunting, you know? And it's funny to think about like, I was trying to just think about like the mentorship experiences that I would have had, like, you know, that were meaningful to me. And like, I mean, truthfully, the spotlighting with my uncle stands out to me. And that was early. I mean, that's when I was uh, whatever, eight, eight to 10. Mm -hmm. And there was a few times where like I tagged along with him, but like uh, over the course of, of my stuff, like there was very little like, okay, we're going hunting. Here's how, like I went duck hunting a few times with my dad and stuff, but like, Pretty early on, like even like the, some of the first tree stands that we, my dad and I hung together, like when I was 12, it was like, oh, I always like, here, we're going down here. Mm-hmm. And like, it was kind of from a distance. I think ultimately it was my uncle that I was like looking up to, but it, he wasn't there most of the sure. time. It was just like, we'd, I'd see him at Christmas or stuff and he'd be like, you know, he would have killed his buck. And I'm like, well, here's these tree stands I'm working on and stuff. And it was just like, I would just watch stuff from a distance and like, mm-hmm. you know, TV maybe had some, I, everyone, I you can see some of that was happening and there's like inspiration from different places, but like almost seems like it's just in your blood. You know, it's just like, I would have found my way to it eventually, you know, yeah. wh- whether I had like hands-on mentorship or I didn't. And certainly there was things that happened along the way that, that maybe kicked me in a different direction or not. Like, you know, I didn't go through a long phase of shooting small deer. I, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. People mm-hmm. should probably do that. But because my uncle was such an established bow hunter and you know, I learned from him, like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, he wasn't about age, but he's, I'm looking for big antler deer. It's like the smallest deer I've ever shot was uh, a two and a half year old, you know, whatever, 115 inch deer. And they've, they've only gone up from there, mm-hmm. you know, pretty substantially and incrementally. Yeah. Um, I don't, I guess I'm kind of ram- rambling I, on a few points here, but dude, yeah. it's, it's just was in, in my blood. Like, I mean, uh, I've knocked the, the milk off a button buck's lip more oh, times yeah. than I can count. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I've, I laid some, uh, some streaks down of just mowing, you yeah. know, but well, and you went all the way through that though, but that's, that's because <laughs> you came from a deer camp. I came from a deer camp where background. it was brown as down oh, and yeah. I, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you brought it back. It didn't matter what time of year it was. It, there was a deer camp, but if before or after you shot one, everybody still came over. It didn't matter if it was a doe or a spike or whatever. Like they yeah. were, you were there, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Both different. worked. They yeah. did. Yeah, That's absolutely. Man. Both worked. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Stealth Cam. Dude, where would we be without our cell cams? I would definitely be divorced at this point. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I mean, the fact is, is I spent more time checking cameras than I actually did hunting prior to cell cameras. Now, at least, my wife can enjoy me being in the comfort of my own home, buried in my phone, checking those pictures. Yeah, 100%. And, dude, when it comes to uh, trail cameras and definitely cell cameras, reliability is, I think, the number one thing that we're looking for. Stealth Cam just has a long reputation of reliable cameras, and ultimately that is the most important thing to us. They have to work. In terms of reliability, there's not a better camera on the market than Stealth Cam, whether you're talking about the Fusion X, the Reactor, or the DS4K Transmit. And most of them are under 200 bucks. StealthCam.com. Check them out. We kind of glazed over it earlier, and I know we're getting ready to wrap up here, but like I, I think... It, you sh- people owe it to themselves to like try to experience as, and this this goes hand in hand with like the uh, expectation, 
like kind of conversation that we were having there is like you should try to immerse yourself in as broad of like a deer hunting the experiences that are available as possible like if you want to shoot a giant mature midwestern deer during the rut you should try to make that happen right that should that should be one thing that you carve out like we you know Mm -hmm. we we go to kansas or we just bought this farm in illinois but I also really want to experience that camp camaraderie like it, that uh, Pennsylvania offers. Right? We did it last year. We and, did it last year. And, yeah, in the Allegheny National Forest with Steve Shirk and yeah. his dad. And yeah. hell, the last morning we we were like, you know, screw it, we're not even going hunt. We're just gonna eat breakfast and tell stories. And that's yeah. all we did for for four hours. Then I took a twenty gauge and went and missed a bunch of grouse because I didn't feel like going deer yeah. hunting. You know, and, but that was sounds camp. like my childhood. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was deer camp. You know what I mean? And yeah. and it feel. It feels good. There's still, um, man, there's a, there's a piece that rekindles there, um, that I think, you know, we have warp to your point, we're way off track at this point, uh, from, from a community side of where most of us in that 25 to 45 age class grew up, what we grew up with deer hunting, uh, we're, we're sitting way over here and the railroad tracks over this way. There's a way to bring that back together and still enjoy chasing mature bucks or you do it at your you, farm. You can have both is the point that I'm trying to get across. Like I, I realize that on our home farm, like I, I have a goal and it's very, very difficult to, to maintain and almost impossible without stepping on some guy's toes that I really care about. Right. So I've had to like be real about what, you know, what expectation I should have on that property. But at the same time, I've gone out and made other opportunities elsewhere. And so now I've got an awesome hunting season where from start to finish, I get to experience the the best of the best of like all of those different types of environments, you know, whether it's just the camp or it's just, and they overlap. That's what you want, man. Yeah. It's awesome. (laughs) That's the fulfilling. Yeah, I think that's the path. And that's what I believe is the path forward is we, we need more people to get engaged with their agencies and their commissions. But if we do it on a, in a sense where we're just coming from these really, you know, strict opinions across the board, then it's just going to be this back and forth battle all the time. It's like, well, this group over here that hates decoys is going and they're going to, they're going to demand that we delete or that we eliminate all decoys. And then this group over here is on to something else or whatever. Yeah. It's like, if we can, if we can agree that there's a line that we're crossing on some of this stuff, I think that we all can. I yep. mean, it sure yeah. seems like it. And then we can focus on the things where we come together, yep. like on the habitat and access side. Then the, then you can gather people and you can get support and go to these places and make a difference. Yeah. Like it doesn't take very much. I've seen it happen in these commissions where two or three people will go there and be vocal and respectful and they will make a difference. It's just people don't understand how they're how their agencies are even how they work. Yeah. They're so removed from that. They just look at their agency and their commission as these, a lot of times these evil money grabbing politicians or whatever that are keeping everything for themselves. And in some cases they may be, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, not in every case. It's just, just goes along with the nature of people. Like you're going to have some good, some bad, sure. but the point is just to get involved. I've learned so much just in the last couple of years about how these States operate. Um, about how, you know, decisions are made and whatnot and how little people actually know about how their commissioners are elected in whatever state. I'm totally guilty of it, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm learning more about that now and trying to educate people as much as we can moving forward. I just think that 
the things that we've discussed here are some of the the unity points um, that we can all find yeah. and move towards that really benefit everybody. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's a huge point on at the as kind of a summary here is like there are some unity. There's plenty of stuff that we can all debate on, and it's good. I I love the healthy debate on all these other factors, but there's a few points that are undeniable. And frankly, even if you're just an outdoor enthusiast and a non-consumptive user, there are still access and habitat are undeniably needed. And so there's there's definitely enough of us to get behind this thing and make a difference, whether it's a habitat stamp that's dedicated to habitat or access or, you know, in the best case scenario, you figure out how to build in this conservation sales tax opportunity. I mean, there's ways to get oh, it done. And I mean, we're the constituents. These guys work for us. They, it may not seem like it most of the time, but these damn dudes work for us or ladies work for us at the upper level. So you just have to be hurt. Yeah, you got to get engaged with your meetings. And some of them are really long and boring, but now they've got them in a lot of states where you can watch them online. You can watch them live. There's even a podcast that I was talking about with a with a previous commissioner from Kentucky recently that they, they record a podcast after every meeting and they condense down mm. the main discussion yeah. points. So you don't have to watch a six-hour meeting. You can listen to a 45-minute podcast and figure out what was talked about. And like you, you may not care about 90% of the things that are in there, but I'm willing to bet every single meeting that happens, there's a couple issues that are brought up that mean something to you. And sometimes we get drug in the weeds on this smaller stuff that doesn't really matter that much. But if we could move the needle that direction, like what you're talking about, Jeremy, that could really make an impact and it wouldn't take Huge. that many people. I don't think it would so. not take that many people at all. If you could even just start at your commission, a lot of these commissions are, um, they're volunteers. Yeah. They're folks that volunteer for the commission position. Then they throw their name in the hat. They get selected by the governor and then approved by the Senator or whatever. Yep. And they're on the commission. Yep. Like you could be a, you could be on it. If you, if you know, within your local hunting community are a sportsman and really support all these things, you could make a significant difference. I tried. I got so, denied. Commissioner Nick. I possibly, tried. Possibly I tried on our fish and boat commission. I made it close, but I'd probably be better on the other side anyway. So oh. <laughs> probably making more noise over here. Yeah. Well, listen, Ward, we appreciate yeah. it, man. Thanks for uh, jumping on and talking about, you know, uh, again, kind of, we talked about it with the Matt Ranella thing. Like some of these are just, you know, it's uncomfortable stuff to talk about and point out, but it's, it's necessary, right? People have to hear this. We have to talk about it. We've got to figure out a, a movement forward from this um, because I, I think a lot of it is maybe talk behind closed doors, but there's no action being made. And so take it as sure. a, as an initial kick in the ass. Like this, this is the stuff that we're all talking about. And obviously they can figure out how to find you or us at some point. If you're, they're like, Hey, I got a pathway into this. Cool. Let us hear it. Like, let, let's go. Let's figure oh, it out. Absolutely, dude. Like I'm not good at 99% of the things out there, but what I can do is communicate with people. Yep. Like that's what the hunting public is about is communicating to the general public that hunts. So, yeah, if you have stuff going on, you got like a piece of public land they're trying to take away from you. Let us know and we'll pour gas on that fire. There you go. I mean, that's what we do. Love um, it. That's one of the main reasons why we started this in the first place. So, yeah. At the absolutely. end of the day, dude, I mean, Matt included, like in this conversation here, I think we all want the same thing, which is mm -hmm. like a quality hunting experience for everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, n who's going to be against that, right? In the hunting Nobody. community? Nobody. 
So it's just, you know, we have different ideas about what that might look like and, and how to go about it, certainly. But, but the end goal is there. It's the same. Yep. And I think these conversations are really important for that reason. So, yeah, thank you for coming on, Ward. Yep. No problem, dudes. All right, Perfect. And uh, we were kind of talking a little bit there on the sidebar, but um, we're basically getting the same endpoints across that Matt was trying to do, just in a different tone of voice, in my opinion. Um, different techniques as well. Um, but, you know, and, and so obviously you hear from the guy there that um, I thought two things that were important. Number one is, you know, he kind of broke down his demographic there. He's, they're not recruiting all these new hunters who have never hunted before. Like, that's a misconception there. Well, intentionally. Yeah. Uh, undoubtedly, they are recruiting hunters. Some. Well, but I think a lot of it, to his point, is guys with kids. The kids get into the THP stuff. The guys already hunting or ladies sure. already hunting. It's just a trickle down. That's fine with me from a recruitment side. I think the misconception is that they're bringing in all these people who never hunted before. I don't think that's necessarily that true. I bet it's a very small portion of their demographic on that side. I mean, hard to say. Like, it's Joe Rogan brings in more people than he does. Yeah, sure. Well, they may or may not be doing it intentionally. Like, But the reality is their, their content showcases the availability of hunting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just by consuming that, people are going to say, oh, there's these places I can go and hunt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not like they're saying... Come, come here, come on. Yeah, yeah do absolutely. that. Absolutely. So I think that that's one big thing. I think the other piece of it is, um, you know, when you look at kind of the the mission statement of you know uh, the hunting public itself, and and you kind of get the feel. I mean, if you've watched enough of their stuff, those guys are just really trying to just enjoy hunting again. Like they, you know, the the take the pressure off of trying to kill the biggest buck and. They just want to go out there and have fun as a group of guys. They do these camps, they do these challenges, like all of that stuff is super cool. I, I think that, um, you know, I didn't, we didn't ask them, but the one thing that I wonder here is as these guys progress is, you know, inevitably they're going to run into more and more people on public that know who they are. Um, I'd be curious to see, I assume half of those reactions are like, Oh my God, it's Zach or Aaron or Greg or whoever. The other half being like, son of a bitch. Like, this is what I didn't want, you know? And that's inevitable with, with the way that it's well, a shared resource. I, I think the interaction with them is almost always going to be positive. I mean, think about, you know, it's, it's just the, like with a keyboard warrior, like it's mm -hmm. easy for somebody to get pissed off sure. and, and go and, Versus you know, bash. And, but when you see somebody in person, it's like, you know, I don't dislike Warb as a person. You know, I'm just I yeah. it might be frustrated that like there's people here and mm -hmm. you know, that comes maybe after I, the fact. I think that you addressed it really well on the multiple factor thing. Like this, COVID, uh, gear, making it easy, opportunity. Like you can't pin any one of these singular things. Like even though we gave Chris B a hard time. Like I can't pin Chris B was the reason in twenty twenty one. Like it, it wasn't sure. because we Warb has confirmed other places. It was yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um but I think that when you look at that kind of side of things, you know, we all kind of circled it and then we really hit it on the head there where it's like, there's a few of these like opportunity things that could be taken away that maybe would have some people saying, no, oh, I'm not going to hunt anymore. But uh, I think in the long run, the dedication to hunting, the passion for hunting and the retention for hunters would blow through the roof. Just making it to your point, and I know people cringe when you say, I just want to make it a little harder. There's something to that that holds tighter for the long haul. What are they? Go. <laughs> well, we, why we talk about a lot of them? I, 
I don't corn know. Corn pals is the corn pals yeah, for I, sure. I think baiting's. I think baiting is the most. I think it's got to go. I agree, and I think there's other reasons that it will go next two to three years. It's going. I think crossbows for able-bodied men. I, and I are, think should be on the docket. And I think it will be and, um, and women. It'll be a tough one because in many states that's been put into law mm-hmm. as archery equipment. Sure. So it'll be a tough one. Uh, agree. Or what I would like to see is separate season. I'm okay if they want to use it, separate season. Fair. Um, give me Kentucky, two, three, four weeks of archery season, like vertical bow season before they come into play. Something like that. Um, I Here's thi- a hard one for you. Not to cut you off. How do we feel about cell cameras? I know how we feel about cell cameras, sure. but in this, the, 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 the context of this conversation. Uh, if bait goes, I'm okay. I don't. I think cell cameras kill bucks for sure. I think it is a high rate of killing bucks over bait or minerals or corn or whatever. I think the in, two in conjunction. Yeah, but like it, our eight cameras in Illinois, I don't think any one of those is going to kill a buck. It may aid in us getting in the position, but so would a normal trail camera, you know, at that point. Well, there's definitely an advantage. Oh, I'm not saying that there's not. I can be here and get the picture. But I'm just saying, intel-wise, like, besides the frequency I'm getting it and the reaction I can make, they're still capturing the same stuff. Um, I think the ability to use that over a corn pile, knowing that deer is coming in and out of the corn pile in tandem is a bad one. And there are situations, like, you know, we talked with... um, might have been Eldridge actually mm-hmm. talking about, uh, you know, in the West, you know, situations where those nomadic herds get extremely condensed over things like a waterhole. Yes. You know, okay, I can see why some of those states are doing away with cell cameras, even though they okay. don't have baiting. I can understand to a point the privacy thing on public land, too. I mean, I'm, I get it. We're, we're privacy privacy nation, uh, you know, whether whatever they want to tell us from a big tech side. But, you know, privacy is a big deal. So, you know, I get that. Um to a level as well. Um, so the, those are, I think those are the big, three big items, the big ones. I, I'm on the fence because now, what, what did we say? Cro- crossbows, baiting, and cell cams. And cell cams. Yeah. I the mean, the two, straight, two of which straight, we use, straight wall cartridge frankly. would be the other one. Um, you know, historically, states like uh, Ohio had been shotgun or muzzle or only. Same with Illinois. Um, you're introducing now straight wall cartridge. Uh, you know, and again, in conjunction, like I think in conjunction, yeah, if you did away with corn piles, I'd be more okay. You quickly can see the one that needs to go. Yeah, right. It's, I mean, well, in, which in, one has the greatest influence? In fairness, over? you get rid of corn piles, keep crossbows. I, you just won't, it won't be nearly as effective as a killing machine. No doubt. No doubt. If it's one or the other, it's corn piles for me, for sure. So I, I think if we had an, if somebody said, all right, guys, what's the one thing we're going to remove from deer hunting? To make things better, I'd say get rid of corn. Well, pulse. didn't hear me out. Like I want to get this out on the table. Like I t- was telling Warb earlier, right before we started. Like, dude, I feel like the biggest hypocrite in the world sometimes because oh, I, I'm bait, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's because you know we'll sit here all f- ten podcasts in a row saying oh, baiting's bad, baiting's this and that. I I ethically don't you know or morally or ethically I, as far as like i, I don't, don't use a crossbow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm not that bad but, <laughs> no, no. no but I, I don't have an issue with baiting wildlife i think that's you know it, it is what it is whatever you want to do where it where it starts where i start to feel not right about it is where like when it's done so frequently on such a large scale that it's like where i don't have a choice yeah 
Um, and, and that's been confirmed. It's like pe- people might still feel like, well, you don't you don't have to. You can hunt the way that you you want to. That's bullshit. In Ohio, it affects me. Yeah, in the state of Ohio, if you're not baiting, you're missing. You are missing well, out. I mean, me from a from a biologist angle, I know the detriments to baiting. The fact is, is I could put bait out as long as I want. I kill my deer, I stop baiting. The deer become reliant in that area. Also, the existing habitat around a bait area is freaking mauled. It mm-hmm. is destroyed. Um, and so for me, and I think for you and for a lot of people, I put a lot of time and money into habitat projects on my farms that frankly are diluted because of baiting in sure. terms of the hunting season. Sure. Now in the off season, nobody's, nobody's really feeding that much. Well, so in the same sense, they're it's, using it's the frankly, property. it's money wasted. Cause you know, why, why would you invest thousands of dollars into, you know, ex habitat improvements Good when question. you could just dump a corn pile? Good question. And ultimately we, and so this is where I wanted to get it on the table. It's not like we don't bait, right? No, like we do. In the state of Ohio, I do like last year, I, do. I, I bought, um, where I buy 5,000 pounds, 7,500, 7,500 for five, five or 600 bucks. Like it's mm-hmm. fairly affordable and it is what it is. Like, I, you know, it's cool. It's cool. It's like, okay, we get, we get pictures of stuff. And, but like, ultimately if, if I, you know, I see how, I see how it manipulates deer movement. I know it's not healthy for them. You know, I know it's not like a, a true organic hunting experience and I see how it takes away from, you know, properties that are well-managed and stuff and, and distributes that wealth to s- small, you know, guys that just come in for two days and, don't and kill deer. It's that's, I just don't think that it's right. I yeah. just, I just think that, uh, everybody would be better off without it. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to like harbor more uh, no. opportunity for myself, even though selfishly I've put a it, lot of work into the properties that we and hunt you would and, benefit I, from and I know it. that they will benefit from that. Yep. Um, I just, I'd like to see that across the board as opposed to who can dump the most corn. I think disease, we, we beat on it a little bit in the last podcast, disease will be the one that removes it. And it, it's happening. It's going to happen faster than people will realize. And frankly, you'll have no say in it. That, sure. That's just how it's going to be. Is it, nor will we. <laughs> yeah, no, nor will we. But it, it will be going in the direction that we would like to see it go. It's going to be gone. Sure. Um, it'll and happen. I, and I don't want to see Kansas is going to happen. Kentucky is going to happen. Ohio eventually will happen. You know, I don't know what other states bait. Those are the ones I care about. Yeah. Well, and I don't, I don't want to take opportunity away from anybody. Um, it doesn't. No, it doesn't I know. Take the, it makes it harder. Yeah. Makes it harder. If you have 10 acres, it's going to make it a hell of a lot harder for you to kill a deer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take the opportunity away. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm not going to make it. It's not a chip shot anymore. Yeah. Well, and it's, again, it's counterintuitive because like what somebody might say, well, I only have this 10 acres to hunt and you know, so-and-so's okay. got all this land locked down. Listen, those larger landowners who currently are, this is the state of Ohio again, who currently are feeling like, I don't know, stolen from, for lack of better words, by smalling neighboring piecings, uh, you know, because of the baiting. If that was done away with, that resource would go back to its like uh, normal movement, to its normal Natural movement. movement. Those landowners, I'm telling you, are going to be more welcoming of or more willing to share the resource with people. Yeah, yeah. The reason that it's so and that deer's not going to just stay on my property. He's still going to go through your property and the neighbor's property. It's it's natural movement. It's just he's not going to go to your corn pile and to your corn pile only because that's what you're offering. It, it, it's going to make it more difficult. Everybody can understand that, right? But we just got over being a little bit more difficult may not be a bad thing. And if it, if you're going to say that, forget it. If they take away corn piles, I'm not hunting anymore. We don't need you. Right. Right. Hit the road. 
you don't like it. Well, you don't yeah, love not like a kick in a boot, but fine. Yeah, fine. Uh, if that's what you want to do, I'll boot you. <laughs> I mean, uh, it just you can't you can't take it a little bit harder. Like, that's just how it's going to be. Sure, sure. It's going to be harder for me too because I can't. Even though if I have a bigger property, I can't do it on my property either. Well, nor could this guy. Nor could this guy. Well, we want it to be harder for a couple of reasons because it's 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 for a couple of reasons because it's more rewarding when you do finally capitalize mm-hmm. on it. It's more passion inspiring for people who are experiencing it maybe for the first time mm-hmm. and it's benefiting the wildlife because That's they natural. have opportunity to gain, you know, a, an age of maturity. Yeah. I I 100% believe that kids although may not see them the same success will long-term have more dedication to the pursuit of hunting because it's a little bit harder. Yeah. And that's and guess hard who for puts people. money into, you know, preserving a, a wild resource or creating habitat or creating access. It's people, regardless of their su- success, who are passionate about this sport. That's who's dumping it in. Yeah. And that's what you want for the future of hunting. And that's the neighbor I want. That's I right. want to be next to the person who is enhancing their habitat and protecting deer and trying to grow better quality herds overall because my property, as small as it may be, is going to benefit from that. Or the public that I'm against it, I'm going to benefit as a public land hunter. Mm-hmm. If anything, the public land hunter and the guy who's managing his property are on the same page with this one. We may be very far apart on a lot of things. are on the same page with this one saying, corn does me no good and does me no good. Get rid of it. Yep. It's a small sliver in the middle of small property owners. Yeah. Agreed. And that's it, Nick. That's it. <laughs> All she wrote. Damn it. That's it. <laughs> we, we were trying to, uh, the other day, we were trying to figure out how to make a t shirt of like a crossbow and a corn pile and like a big X around yeah. uh, For, I have a draft. You got a draft of it? I'm working on I it. It'll sell. Like, <laughs> I'll wear it. Yeah. Well, hey, if uh, that's why we're doing this podcast actually is to sell t shirts. Sell merch. <laughs> we're merching. That's the main thing. And Nick's going to be our new merch salesman. Yeah, I have to fulfill those out of my basement at home. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Y'all been wondering who's been sending this stuff yeah. out here. Yeah, it's a pretty high glass operation here. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, we appreciate you listening to episode 140 with Aaron Warbritton of the Hunting Public. Uh, great to have War back on. It's August. You're listening to this in mid-August. Season is coming. You're starting to feel it. Get out there and shoot your bow. We'll see you <laughs> later. It's taking me. Oh.